Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 47 of X-Lapsed, where we are officially on the road to the milestone 50th episode of this program, which uh, is something that I think only matters to me. But uh, we're headed there anyway, and we're doing so with a mini-series. Today we start a little something that some people call X-Men slash Fantastic Four, other places call it X-Men versus Fantastic Four. The cover says X-Men plus Fantastic Four, so I guess that's what we'll call it. This is X-Men plus Fantastic Four number one at an April 2020 cover date. Title is The Impossible Boy, written by Chip Zosky. Pencils Terry Donson with inks by Rachel Donson, Dex Devines, and Call Story. Colors by Laura Martin, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. We got a whole new editorial staff here. This is Shannon Andrews Belesteros, Alana Smith, Tom Brevort, and of course CB Sabalski. Cover price $4.99 and went on sale February 5th of this very year, 2020. We open this sucker up and we get a roll call broken into two. Now we get a group that are known as the Feared and Hated, and it starts with Call Me Kate. So, uh, now I understand why uh, this story has to fit in before Marauders number six. It's obvious now. We also have Storm, Charles Xavier, Magneto, Wolverine, Iceman, Kid Omega. Wait a minute, I thought he was dead. I don't know. The Cuckoos, Pyro, and Bishop. Then we have a list of four fearless friends, of which they list six. Mr. Fantastic, The Invisible Woman, Human Torch, Thing, a brunette Franklin Richards? What the hell kind of nonsense is this? And Valeria Richards. Now we open our comic story with the quick and dirty on the life and times of Franklin Richards, our titular impossible boy. He is, of course, the son of Reed and Sue. Duh. He can create universes, which is a statement of fact and also might be a reference to that whole Heroes Reborn thing. Y'all notice how people are starting to come around to those books nowadays? Internet contrarianism really knows no bounds, huh? Uh, We also learn about that every time that Franklin uses his powers nowadays, they deplete. And so he worries about not having a future in the superhero biz. We shift scenes from this to Krakoa, where Kitty and the Marauders have just returned from a mission. So again, uh, there's there's no footnote to advise us, but we can probably posit that, you know, quote, this story occurs prior to the events of Marauders number six. Kitty and Storm are greeted by Quentin Quire, so I'm going to guess Brevoort and company didn't know he was still dead, or eh, maybe he's not. You know, maybe this is a quickie res like like our friend A.E. over in Excalibur. Now, he's kind of a jerk toward Kitty because, well, Quentin's kind of a jerk. The cuckoos step in to give him a psychic slap. Uh, question, how long have there only been two cuckoos? Uh, has it been a while? Or are there more lurking around? I feel like every time we see them nowadays, it's just the two of them anymore. So 
Maybe something happened. I thought there were like four, maybe even five. But uh, I knew it was more than two, <laughs> I think. Uh, now, whatever the case, this brief three-panel bit was enough to get Quentin and the Cuckoos onto the roll call page, so good on you. Now, before vanishing out of the story, however, the Cuckoos tell Kitty that Professor X needs to speak with her. Kitty and Storm part company, with the latter heading off to Tender Garden, while the former goes to check out what Xavier wants. And we follow Kitty. She heads to Xavier's, where she finds he and Magneto checking out a bunch of pictures of Franklin Richards. Remember to clear your browser history, fellas. Anywho, Kitty recognizes Franklin, despite the fact that he'd recently been Jonathan Kented in age after a mission. I suppose maybe that explains his new dark hair. I didn't realize going from bright blonde to black hair was something that happened during puberty, but that isn't my area of science, so what do I know? I do wonder if this Fantastic Four story happened at, like, the exact same time as Jonathan Kent was being rapidly aged in the Superman books. It's, it's weird how we have situations like that so often in comics, where both companies do something at the, the exact same time where either company really couldn't know about it, and it's just such a weird coincidence. Um, now, Xavier reminds everyone reading that Franklin is not only the son of, you know, Reed and Sue, but he's also an Omega-level mutant. And Kitty immediately understands why she'd been called here today. You see, Xavier wants her help to recruit the boy to come live on Krakoa. And we even get a call back to the 1987 Fantastic Four vs. X-Men miniseries, which, tell you what, shocked the hell out of me. Uh, I, I do wonder if they tried selling a reprint or a collected edition of this when, when this book hit the stands. It seems like a, a smart play, but what do you know? Uh, whatever the case, Kitty and Franklin bonded back then, and so Xavier assumes that they probably still have a sort of bond. Kitty gives the big thumbs up, which garners an actual thank you from Magneto. We follow Kitty outside, where she runs into Wolverine, who's, you know, hanging out in a tree like you do. She hands over some loot, in the form of many cans of assumedly warm beer, and they talk about her current fantastic mission. She says she feels funny about trying to convince a kid to do anything, to which Logan suggests that kids grow up real quick when they're mutants. From here, we shift scenes over to 4 Yancey Street, which is apparently the new digs of the Fantastic Four. Reed is performing some tests on Franklin to see if he can figure out why he's losing his powers with each use, but can't come up with any answers. Franklin, he gets annoyed and he storms out, sarcastically thanking his father for carving out a few minutes from attending to everything else in the universe to try and help his own flesh and blood. Yeah, Franklin does everything but, you know, stomp his foot and say, I, I never asked to be born, right? Gosh. Uh, it's still weird seeing Reed with a beard. Um, in some panels, it makes him look a lot younger, while in others, it ages him horribly. It's Reed with a beard's just strange. Now, Reed and Sue talk for a little bit about their boy, with Sue comparing what Franklin's going to to a career-ending soccer injury she suffered as a teenager. You see, she was a really good soccer player, and it made her feel special. But, after hurting herself, that one thing that made her special was no more. So it's kind of a fitting comparison. Next, now we might have been able to escape the ex-editor's office, but we cannot escape the dreaded info page. I'm not sure if the current volume of Fantastic Four uses info pages like the Hox Pox Docs books do, or if this is just a way to fit in with those books. Uh, this page is out of the Journal of Reed Richards, and explains the concept of the God Power Theory. Which, if I'm reading this right and I'm not completely off my nut, is somewhat similar to the Flash being able to tap into the Speed Force for his powers. Now, Reed posits that Franklin is somehow being cut off from his intradimensional power source, 
And I figure that's as good a theory as any, right? We return to comics by shifting scenes to Franklin and Ben having a bite to eat at Happy's Diner. Now, Franklin, he's really annoyed with his father, but Ben tries to talk him down. Franklin asks Ben how come his father is able to solve just about every single problem in the universe except for them. And you know, the kid's got a point here. It's kind of hard to reconcile the fact that Reed can fix literally everything. And yet, after all these years, Ben Grimm is still a great big orange rock monster. Ben pauses and he ponders it for a moment, but assures Franklin that his dad's only got the best of intentions. Now, this chat is interrupted by the arrival of Johnny Storm, who informs his pals that they've got company, and it ain't the good kind of company. Indeed, right outside Foy Yancey Street are the Marauders, Professor X, Magneto, and of course Wolverine, because he's not busy enough in the handful of books he's already featured in. Sue asks why they're here, to which Xavier tells her what, you know, what she already knows the answer to that. And this is a pretty frightening thought, no? I mean... A group of extremely powerful mutants show up at your doorstep and tell you, in no uncertain terms, that they're here to take away your child. This isn't a good look for the X-Men here, and it's kind of giving me flashbacks and vibes to Cyclops' ham-fisted mutant revolution team post-schism and AVX. Which, what did they call that in the the House of X books? The the, the Lost Decade? (laughs) It's fitting. Now, while the grown-ups argue, Kitty slides into Sue's force field, that's not a euphemism, where Franklin's being kept, and the pair embrace. And they decide everyone's going to take this discussion inside. And so, the Richards-zizzizzizz offer their guests some coffee, and they sit down in the living room to discuss the attempted abduction? It's a very surreal scene, but I really like it, too. Uh, Charles attempts to be... I don't know, diplomatic with his uh, the words he chooses, where... Magneto pulls no punches, as Magneto is known to do. Sue reacts to Magneto's bluntness by jamming him into a force field bubble and hurling him toward a wall. Xavier warns her to release him or else he'll make her do so. Well, this rightfully ticks Reed off, who proclaims there will be no mental violations today. As this continues, Kitty whispers to Franklin, asking if he wants to, you know, get the hell out of here. He does, and so they do. They phase out into the city so they can have themselves a walk and talk. As they leave, we see uh, Storm and the Thing having a chat on the stoop. Ben can't believe that Storm would go along with this idea, to which she says it's what's best for mutants. She cites the Genosian genocide as the reason that mutant unity is needed. Ben wonders if cramming all the mutants together on one island, thereby making another Genosha-like target, is really in anybody's best interests. And yeah, he's uh, kind of got a point there. Um, this little bit here makes me wonder a bit. Um, Storm is very rah-rah. She is all in on this idea, which to me doesn't totally fit her character, does it? I, I would think that she would... Uh, I don't know. I think that she would put more thought into it. But she is just totally accepting of whatever Xavier is feeding her. Just seems kind of strange. Um We resume with Kitty and Franklin, and they head toward the Washington Square Arch. Kitty asks Franklin where he stands with all this madness, and he actually seems like he wants to go to Krakoa. He's hopeful that Xavier and company might be able to help him with his powers where his father can't, or won't. Inside the square, just past the fountain, Kitty points out a Krakoan gateway. She informs Franklin that should he, you know, decide to head to Krakoa, he'll never be completely disconnected from his family. He can come back, pop through, see them as often as he'd like. 
She also tells him that no matter what he ultimately decides, he'll she's got his back. She'll back him up and uh, and do whatever he wants. Now, this chat is interrupted by, well, the same chat interrupter from earlier, the Human Torch. He accuses Kitty of kidnapping, but is blown away by a gust of wind before he can snatch the boy. Storm, the rest of the Marauders, and, of course, Wolverine are on the scene. The latter has his claws out, for whatever reason. I mean, this is still a hero versus hero disagreement, right? Maybe cool it with the claws there, pal? (laughs) That's not... The X-Men are really coming across bad here, aren't they? (laughs) I mean, Wolverine is more than capable of fighting Johnny Storm without his claws out, and yet, here we are. Uh, Mr. Fantastic and the Thing show up to intervene. Uh, Reed wraps Wolverine in his weirdo stretchy torso, and Ben smashes Iceman's ice slide. Invisible Woman shows up, and for like the 40th time this issue, creates a force field bubble, this time encasing Bishop and Pyro within. She then uses her powers to hurl Magneto into a nearby parked bus. Magneto responds by, you know, levitating all the vehicles around him, which certainly doesn't make him look like a crazy villain, does it? No, he's just defending himself, right? Xavier steps in and tells Reed that it don't need to go like this. Reed tells Charles to back off. His son is nearly a man now, and when he is a man, he can make his own decisions about Krakoa, and everything will work itself out. For now, though, Reed is more suspicious of Xavier's, like, weird and urgent timetable than anything. And, uh, he's kind of got a point. I mean, why is it so important for Xavier to recruit Franklin right this very minute? Is there something going on behind the scenes that we're unaware of? Are we on a sort of timer? I mean, that's... That's weird. Now, while this debate rages, Kitty and Franklin touch base, with the latter breaking away and running directly for the Krakoan gateway. And he runs right through it. As in, he doesn't pass through it and appear in Krakoa, he runs through it as though it wasn't even there. He doesn't understand what's going on. To which, Reed apologizes to his son, and he he comes clean about something he'd done. Now, you see, Reed created a device that masked Franklin's mutant gene, thereby stopping him from being able to access these Krakoan gateways. Now, Franklin's beside himself. After all, Reed was supposed to be trying to help him fix whatever's wrong with him, and here he is putting all sorts of effort into trying to cover up who and what Franklin really is. The boy stomps away while Reed stands by all slump-shouldered. At this point, the X-Men decide to depart, with Xavier hitting Reed with a glib parting shot about how, yeah, this'll probably all work itself out. We rejoin Franklin later on in his bedroom, and he's joined by his annoying little sister, Val. They talk about how their father's kind of a douche, and cite a recent adventure where they discovered that he'd tagged them with tracking devices. Now, speaking of Reed being a douche, at this very moment, he's confronted by the thing. Ben gets all up in his face and tells him that it's getting more difficult by the minute to convince Richards' kids that their father's a good guy and says Reed's got to stop pulling garbage like this. Ben stomps out, leaving Reed alone with Sue. Now, Sue, she's a bit more understanding. She doesn't agree with masking Franklin's mutant gene, but suggests that if the X-Men had tried taking him by force, she would have killed them herself. Reed suggests it's time for him to be a better father and... Well, it's not like you had nearly 40 years to dry already, right? We hop back to Krakoa. Xavier fills Cyclops in on just what just went down. Scott's costume looks way off here. Very, very weird. Um, Xavier considers the little meet-and-greet to be a success. 
and he figures that they're not going to have to try quite as hard to get Franklin on board. In fact, he suspects Franklin will soon come to them. And so, we shift scenes to the Marauder, where Kitty and the crew are about to deal with some rough weather. She asks Pyro to wake Storm for an assist on the weather front, while she heads over to a supply chest to fetch a few flares in case they need them. She opens that chest, and inside are Franklin and Valeria. Kitty reacts, well, exactly like you might expect her to react. She's shocked and uh, rather worried. The kids cheerfully say that they want to go to Krakoa. Franklin may be forever, Val just for a visit. The only problem is that, uh, well, the Marauder ain't headed to Krakoa. They're actually on a mission to pick up some stranded refugees. Then, the Marauder hits something, which stirs the whole crew up to the upper deck. Bishop thinks there's no way they hit any rocks this far offshore, and, uh, well, he's right. They didn't hit rocks. What they did hit was some mechanical tentacles courtesy of Dr. Doom. So, uh, is he back to being a full-on bad guy again, or is he still the Fantastic Four's Magneto? Well, hopefully I'll find out next time, because next episode we will be talking about X-Men plus Fantastic Four number two. Alright, let's talk about this one. Uh, this was the miniseries I have been looking forward to since seeing House of X number one. This is This is the story that I've wanted to check out. This is the... The conflict with uh, Franklin in the middle that I've wanted to see for many, many years now. So, let's see how this played out here. I I really like this. Um, I do have one big problem with it, in that it makes me really miss reading the Fantastic Four. It's too bad it's being written by Dan Slott, who will likely have a stranglehold on the property until like 2035 or so. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of dance lot work that I really enjoy and actually love. Um, I'd suggest that his Superior Spider-Man is probably one of the best runs of the 2010s. I loved it. I would go as far as to say he was probably born to write that. Um, that said, in much of Slot's current year work, I can't help but to feel an underlying anger. Like, almost a disdain toward the readership. Um, I've seen a few of his exchanges on social media throughout the years, and he... Uh, Definitely takes the most benign comments as, like, horribly personal insults. And he reacts with, like, pure petulance and usually just cursing people out, which is a real shame because I, I find him to be a very talented guy. And, you know, if that anger and resentment were to stay on social media, that'd be one thing. But I swear I feel it in the work as well. You know, I'd probably, I'd probably put him in a similar a column as Mark Wade, who's... Contemporary work also feels very angry for no reason. Like like they're thumbing their nose at people for, uh, for I, I guess, for having the nerve to buy their book. I don't know. But uh, I would really like to uh, to read more Fantastic Four. It's just it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. So I guess we put a check in the win column because I really, really like this. Put a check in the loss column because it makes me miss a book that I probably won't be able to revisit anytime soon. Now, I don't know this Chip Zosky from A Hole in the Wall, but I'd love to see him working on the Fantastic Four or even an X-Book full-time out of this. I uh, really, really enjoyed his work here. Though they really did heal the X-Men out here, huh? They, they really made them feel like the bad guys. Uh, I mentioned during the synopsis that I was having flashes of Cyclops's... Were they called the Extinction Team? Or whatever they were being called post-schism. They were definitely being written as the bad guys. You know, they were the Magneto approximation of Xavier's dream, with as little subtlety as that implies. 
Uh, it was really hard to relate to them then, and it's equally hard to relate to them here. It's hard for me to see them as anything but the villains in this. I mean, they arrived at the Richards' door with the intent of taking their son away from him. It's not a good look. But sadly, it's like the only look the X-Men get when they engage with the other heroes of the Marvel Universe anymore. It's Everybody needs to be more virtuous than the X-Men. It's never the other way around, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, this is coming from a, the, the only guy in my local shop who bought the I Stand with the X-Men <laughs> pin when AVX number one came out. Um, now, there is a lot of good stuff to talk about here. We'll... Do like a inch deep mile wide Because I'm sure we're going to be digging deeper into this As we go on throughout the next uh, three episodes But uh, I love the use of history here uh, Franklin's ability to create universes Which you know we have seen a time or two before uh, The callback to Kitty and Franklin's bond During the first Fantastic Four vs. X-Men miniseries um, Really cool stuff And it reminds me of a rumor that was running rampant when Chris Claremont took over on the Heroes Return run of Fantastic Four, that uh, he was going to bring Kitty Pride in full time as Franklin's nanny, and uh, I remember people people being kind of split on that, but but I, overall overall it was pretty exciting for folks because Claremont had been gone for he'd been away from the X Men family for like seven or eight years at that point, and uh, folks were a little jazzed to see what he might do. And that was really a, a pretty fun run. Uh, kind of underrated, too. It's just another pile of issues of comics that I wish I could add a few extra hours to the day in order to revisit. But uh, probably not anytime soon, unfortunately. Uh, I enjoyed seeing Franklin's skepticism toward his father, uh, questioning how just how Reed is able to do you know damn near the impossible on a regular basis. And yet, hasn't figured out how to change Ben back to his human form, right? That's that's some really solid... And it uh, gives us plenty of f- interesting food for thought. Um, as was, you know, Ben's brief pause upon hearing it before dutifully giving his pal the benefit of the doubt. It's definitely something that could cause you to view Reed a little bit differently. I, I guess that is if you weren't already looking at him as something of a villain. His use of a device to hide Franklin's mutant gene is also quite interesting, um, because at first blush, it's a total dick move, right? But, you know, one of those hard things to do if we if we put ourselves in his shoes, you can kind of see where he's coming from there. Um, he's scared, right? And uh, scared people do things that uh, may not be the most ethical, or may not be... May, they may project people's best interests, right? So, total dick move <laughs> at the uh, at the surface level, but you can kind of see where he's coming from, and you can almost relate to him. Uh, Reed himself uh, raised a few good points as well, uh, especially questioning Xavier's timetable, because I, I never even thought about this. Um, what is the rush here? Is, uh, is Xavier expecting, dare I say it, Another shooter drop. Um, I'd say this is probably my main takeaway of this issue, probably the line of the issue, simply because it got me to start questioning things myself. We've talked over and over again that Xavier's been pretty dodgy ever since House of X number one. I personally haven't felt comfortable anytime I saw him on panel just yet, so adding a little skeptical fuel to that fire goes a long way with me. Um, Franklin and Val stowing away on the Marauder That was pretty neat Though if I'm being completely honest 
I kind of wish we could have maybe sidestepped the Doctor Doom appearance. I mean, of course we were going to get Doom, but uh, <laughs> it's like, okay, enough. Uh, the art here, uh, I really liked it, though it felt perhaps a, a bit out of date with the rest of the Dawn of X era stuff. I mean, it's the Dodsons, which is a good thing. That's a good thing, but I don't know. It didn't really feel of its time. It felt like it. It felt like it could have been a story from ten years ago, um, which I mean isn't that long a time ago. But I don't know. Like the kitty here didn't look like the kitty in Marauders. Um, I don't know. But it, I, I still, you know, it's the Dodsons, and what, what's not to love, right? Overall, if I haven't made it clear, I really enjoyed this, though. It must be said that part of me is concerned that since this is coming out from a non-ex-editorial office, that it's going to wind up having very little lasting power and won't result in much of much in the way of ramifications. Though I'm hopeful I'm in the wrong here. Right here, I doubt very, very highly that this ends with Franklin taking up residence on Krakoa, but I'm still interested in seeing how it all shakes out. Okay, now before we cut out of here, we have an abbreviated mailbag section here. Just one missive here from Damien discussing Excalibur number six, the surprising Excalibur number six. Damien says, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed reading this issue of Excalibur. I'd actually given it up with issue five, so maybe I should have given it more time. Although one interesting story out of six is probably not enough. And I agree. <laughs> <laughs> going one for six in the uh, in the good column, though I think uh, reflecting, I think I liked like one and a half of the issues. I think I, I think I liked issue four, maybe maybe I liked four. I don't know, or maybe I liked four simply because all the other books were so rotten that time out. But uh, yeah, this one was uh, was decent. Um, didn't give me the kind of closure I was looking for, like something out of the you know the farm issue of uh, New Mutants, but definitely solid enough, solid enough. And uh, I'm surprised to hear that you dropped it at issue five, considering you know the Marvel method as being a six issue uh, story arc. Uh, I, I'm surprised you didn't stick it out just for that one more, just to see how it wound up. Um, but yeah, this was a uh, surprisingly solid. Um, Certainly, like like Fallen Angels, probably didn't need six issues to get to this point. But you know, this is uh, this is the world we live in now. I, it's hard for me personally to put aside the uh, the monetary side of it. You know, over the past few years, I've done some current year DC comic reviews. You know, and one of the things I'd always bring up is is the you know exorbitant prices on these books because. If I'm reviewing the first 10 issues of a series and it only starts getting good around issue 9, I mean, that's all well and good, right? You have a good book at that point, but you spent like like 50, 60 bucks to get there. It's, I don't know, it's a, we're, we're definitely in a writing for the trade sort of world now where uh, we are playing the long game, but unfortunately, we're playing the long game while still selling monthly comics. And, uh... That doesn't always work out so good, because uh, I, I think we're pacing for a bigger story rather than making sure every issue is its own story. So, yeah, <laughs> I look at this and it's like, okay, we had five issues that were, you know, rotten to passable, but uh, what did we pay for those? You know, we paid $20 for a story we weren't really digging until the sixth issue, which doesn't really make up for the fact that we spent all that money on stuff that we 
weren't really digging. And of course, this is just me speaking for me. If if folks enjoyed all six issues of Excalibur, I, I'm happy. I'm happy for you. Everybody should find something to enjoy. Uh, back to Damien, he says, Nice to see some nice character bits in this issue as well. This is where I think Teeny Howard excels, and I wish she'd focus more on interpersonal relationships rather than sword and sorcery nonsense. And yeah, I would... <laughs> I would say that that was definitely where this, uh, where the story was, uh, was at its strongest, and that not only Teeny Howard but every creator in comics should focus more on interpersonal relationships than sword and sorcery nonsense. I can't get into that stuff if I if I was being paid to be into that stuff. It's a uh, that's a hard sell for me. But I think the uh, the relationships we saw, uh, you know, we had Gambit and Rogue in the in the hot tub talking about their future. I thought that was cool. Uh, Rogue and Psylocke chatting about uh, whether or not Psylocke has it in her to kill her brother. I mean, that was cool. All the stuff with A is great. Um, besides his very rapid resurrection, which felt very... <laughs> felt like a cheat. Uh, and, an abu- and, you know, it's an abuse not only of the miracle of mutant resurrection, but also a- an abuse of the gimmick. Um, but yeah, I would like to see, going forward... I mean, I'm not convinced that we're not going to be right back at the at the door of Otherworld uh, when issue 7 opens up. I'm hopeful that we're not. I'm hopeful maybe we get a day in the life story or maybe just something that isn't sword and sorcery. But knowing a little bit about what X of Tens is going to give us, I'm not holding my breath. But fingers are crossed. Uh, Damien wraps up with Marcus Toe. Or t- i got to figure out how to say this dude's name. Marcus Two? Marcus Toe? We'll just call him Marcus T. Marcus T continues to impress, particularly in the Brian and Betsy chat when he has to do some subtle acting. It was outstanding. And yes, yeah, seeing uh, Brian struggle with his decision, even though he wasn't in his right mind when he made it, uh, very, very good use, uh, very great facials, great emotion. Um, It was really good stuff. Uh, This uh, this Marcus... I, I gotta figure out how to say his name, because I don't want to just say Marcus T. But uh, Marcus, he's really, uh, he's really proven himself to be a uh, very capable artist in uh, with everything they're throwing at him. Um, as much as the sword and sorcery stuff kind of bores me, I can't deny that he's not rendering it well because he really is. Um, Shogo is a dragon. It's a stupid idea, but he makes it look good. So there's that. But uh, yes, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts on the wildly surprising Excalibur number six, Damien. I very much appreciate it. And uh, I think that is where we will put a pin in it for today. Now, if anybody would like to get a hold of me, you could do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. I've kind of put the brakes on the Twitter for now, but... I've had a couple people reach out asking where it went, so uh, Ace Comics on Twitter. Maybe it'll be back, maybe it won't. Um, you can find show notes at chrisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. If maybe this is the first episode you're hearing and you want to go back and listen to them in order, xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com gives them to you in the order they're supposed to be listened to in. So there's that. Uh, the Facebook group, 90s X-Men, there's also the full audio archives over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And that'll do it for me today. Just uh, one more big thank you for everyone who's still sticking around with me and sharing your time. Uh, we are just a couple episodes away from episode 50, which I tell you, on uh, the evening of August well, How many days are in August? 30 or 31? Whatever the last day in August is, I was writing my first script. 
for X lapsed looking at house of X number one and, uh, Never would have thought that I'd get anywhere near 50 episodes in. So this is quite a thrill for me. It, uh, the show may not look or sound like much, but I, I put a lot of work into it. And uh, I don't want to say I'm proud of it, but I'm, I'm happy I've stuck with it. So fingers crossed I don't get hit by a bolt of lightning and we actually do get to episode 50. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, I probably wouldn't still be doing this if I didn't have folks listening. So thank you all so, so much for... Uh, for keeping me company and keeping me sane and keeping me on task. So, giant thank you to everyone. Uh, and until next time, when we will cover the second part of X-Men Plus Fantastic Four, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 48 of X-Lapsed, where uh, we're going to keep it rolling with our coverage of X-Men Plus Fantastic Four. So today, we'll hop right in. It's X-Men Plus Fantastic Four, issue number two. It's had an April 2020 cover date. Stories called Broken Borders, written by Chip Zosky, with pencils by Terry Dodson. Inks by Rachel Dodson, Call Story, and Ransom Getty. Colors, Laura Martin. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Edits are Ballestero, Smith, Brevoort, and Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale February 26th of 2020. So we kick things off and let's roll call it up. Of course, we've got our two lists of roll calls here. One goes under Feared and Hated, and they include Call Me Kate, Storm, Charles Xavier, Bishop, Magneto, Cyclops, Multiple Man, Emma Frost, and Nightcrawler. Then we got our four fearless friends, of which there are six. Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Woman, Human Torch, Thing, Franklin Richards, and Valeria Richards. We open the comic story here with with Cyclops and the Fantastic Four in a like a holographic communique. We're in the Richards's living room here, and Cyclops is you know being beamed in. And uh, those Richards's believe that the mutants have abducted their children because hey, they ain't there anymore. 
Cyclops assures them that this is not the case at all. The Fantastic Four kind of flipped the script here, suggesting that the X-Men don't consider any of their concerns valid since they're only human. And so they don't have all that newfound mutant privilege, I suppose. Cyclops kind of fumbles and stumbles with his response. And while on the subject, he uh, informs the fam here that Krakoa is Franklin's birthright, but it ain't Valeria's. Now, this causes Sue to go all mama lion on us. She flips out, yelling at the projection, claiming that Cyclops and the X-Men put a higher value on Franklin's life than they do Val's. Cyclops, once again, bless him, he fumbles and stumbles, trying to assure her that that wasn't what he meant at all. To which, Sue smashes the projector, which ends the conversation. Back to Krakoa, where Magneto asks Scott if this is going to be a problem. Scott turns and replies, yeah, it's going to be a problem. From here, double page spread of creds, uh, which I neglected to comment on last episode. It begs the question here, um, maybe someone can enlighten me. Do all Marvel books come with two pages of credits now? I mean, the X-Books are the only ones I read, and I assumed it was just like a weird stylistic choice. I suppose that just might be the way Marvel does business nowadays. Uh, I guess anything to keep us from getting a you know, single extra page of story, I guess. Now back to comics. We're at 4 Yancey Street, and Reed is imploring Sue not to escalate the situation any further. Now Sue ain't hearing none of that. She's ready to take the fight to the X-Men. Reed reminds her that, hey, mutants are a nation now, so to attack them would be... Something of an act of war. Sue don't give a rat's ass about that, and Ben and Johnny agree. So it looks like our four fearless friends are Krakoa-bound. We shift scenes over to the Marauder, where Kitty is approaching Dr. Doom. He zaps her with his mitt, she goes down, falls underwater, and passes out. Which, uh, I don't know, seems to be her go-to these days, isn't it? Anywho, sometime later, she wakes up, finding herself seated at a banquet table with Doom and the Richards kids. Victor immediately assures her that she and her crew are safe, for the moment. He also informs her that the mutant refugees she was after are here on this uncharted island. It's the, uh, creatively named Doom Island. I guess can't win them all. Val glibly asks Doom what he's hiding, which is cute. Uh, makes me really miss Val and Doom's odd little, you know, repartee there, their, their cute little relationship. Uh, Kitty pipes in, wondering why Doom doesn't just keep his mutants on Latveria. And you see, Doom's no dummy. He knows the way the world is changing, and so, upon realizing that having mutants will make him something of a target of Krakoa, and probably result in a conflict that will ultimately end in war, he moved his muties to this little island. So this is a, a little bit of risk mitigation Doom style. He then reveals that he has an interest in helping to get to the bottom of Franklin's power problems. He vows to make Franklin be all that he can be. From here we go to an info page. We're back in the Journal of Reed Richards, and this is entry number 661026, and it's called The Mutant Population. We see here, perhaps for the first time since Hoxpox docks, that there are approximately 200,000 mutants living on Krakoa. It seems awfully high, doesn't it? I probably would have guessed like a thousand. <laughs> 200,000, yikes. Uh, there were also 10,000 mutants currently not living on Krakoa, and about a dozen or so Omega-level mutants. Uh, dozen. Should, should I start waxing nostalgic over the concept of the 12 again? Or am I still the only person on the planet stuck on that? Maybe we'll talk about the 12 a little bit later on today. We'll see. 
From here, we get a panel with Jamie Madrox and his dupes doing a sweep of the abandoned Marauder, which was enough to get him listed on the roll call. Now, he ain't finding diddly squat, but he notes that the boat is off the coast of Japan, where it shouldn't be. Worth noting, the way Dodson draws Jamie here is very much the way he draws Franklin, so for a split second, I thought this was Franklin, which was very confusing. Now, the quiet council confers to discuss what might be about to happen. Xavier claims that none of the Marauders nor Franklin are currently pinging on Cerebro. We get an aside from Emma Frost, who teases Cyclops about having a seat, you know, at the big boys' table. He smiles and assures her that he lives to serve, which probably tells us more than we need to know about their sex life. During this weird bit of flirtation, Xavier is able to locate the missing muties. Magneto immediately gets in gear to go fetch him. Cyclops is like, hey, pump the brakes. And he reminds everybody that Krakoa is very likely in danger. Since, you know, the Fantastic Four ticked off and probably already well on their way. Xavier here sort of sides with Magneto, but Cyclops warns that they're going to need a strong line of defense here on the, on the home front. Magneto's all for s'more. He doesn't care. He doesn't suffer the Fantastic. Nightcrawler pipes in to justify getting his spot on the roll call, just to remind Eric about how formidable Reed and his crew are. He then mentions that, you know, due to the Invisible Woman's powers, they could be darn near anywhere. And, well, they are. Suddenly, the Quiet Council quarters are... starts getting wrecked, and the Invisible Thing socks Magneto in the head. Cyclops lets fly an optic blast, which, as luck would have it, strikes Sue hard enough to KO her. Suddenly, the Fantastic Four pop back into view. They're no longer invisible, but they are wearing some odd helmeted uniforms to block out those with mind-affecting powers. The four make a break for it, with Reed carrying Sue. From here, we jump back to Doom Island, where Doom, Kitty, and the kids are walking through the foliage. Kitty presses her hand into a wall, realizing she's depowered, she can't phase through it, and she asks if Doom depowered the rest of her teammates as well. He says... Yeah, that sort of thing isn't his style. Blocking out a specific gene is more up Reed Richards' alley, to which, zing. Val agrees that her father can be overbearing, but uh, doesn't allow Doom to change the subject. She presses on how he stopped Kitty from using her powers. And Doom says, yeah, he's really missed Val a lot. And uh, yeah, so have I. I, I. This is such a fun relationship. Uh, Doom reflects back to the 1987 Fantastic Four vs. X-Men miniseries when he helped Kitty with her powers. From here, he claims to know more about them than Kitty does herself, which creeps Ms. Pride out more than a little bit. The foursome enter a castle and then into a laboratory where Doom assures Franklin that here he will help him reach his full potential. Franklin worries that there'll be a catch, which, you know, stands to reason. Back to Krakoa, where the mutants are chasing the Fantastic Four. Nightcrawler bamfs into Socrates in the face, Cyclops just starts optic blasting everybody. And he's soon backed up by uh, some cameo-making mutants here. We've got Colossus, Rogue, Gambit, Psylocke, Cannonball, Pixie maybe, and, and of course Wolverine. So, if I'm not mistaken, and I might be, we haven't seen Colossus since like that one panel in X-Force number one when he was in like the, like the bottom part of Kit, one of Kitty's stolen boats. Uh, Cannonball, uh, we don't even know if he'll return to Krakoa from Shi'ar space yet. And Psylocke, I mean, this is clearly Quanon, but I'd almost bet money that they intended for this to be Betsy. Uh, they, we, we keep piling editors into these books, and I, I still can't place the when of this crew. And of course, that's also discounting the Kitty and Quentin questions that uh, we had last issue. Anyway, Reed tries shaking Sue back to consciousness, knowing that sh their only hope lies in her. 
then he has an idea that, I don't know, kind of loses me a bit. He removes Sue's mask, which allows Emma Frost to use her powers on her, which somehow gives Sue something of a jumpstart? Eh, alright. Now, while Wolverine is hacking away at the thing, with his claws out, Sue lets loose with a force field which tosses the mutants to, you know, all four corners of the, uh, of the island here. The Fantastic Four retreat to the Fantastic Car and take off. And somewhere, somehow, in this fracas, Sue was able to deduce the coordinates of Doom Island. Did I miss something here? Are these pages out of order? This, I, I, hmm, this feels very convenient. Whatever the case, Xavier tells Cyclops that they're going to have to assemble a team and head to Doom Island themselves. Now, speaking of Doom Island, Kitty has her crew return to her, and they're none the worse for wear, though they're pretty annoyed about having been locked up for the past little while. Kitty gives them the deets, and uh, yeah, they're with Doom, and uh, yeah, she's made a deal with him. They're going to be here as his guests while he works on fixing Franklin. Bishop is pretty incredulous, and uh, probably rightly so. He does get a single line of dialogue here, which I suppose justifies him getting a blip on the roll call page. Elsewhere, Franklin and Val chat about whether or not this is a good idea. Val reminds Franklin that, while their family and Doom have their differences, for some reason, Uncle Doom has a soft spot for the kids. She suggests that Doom won't do anything to hurt either one of them, plus, if he can fix Franklin, it'll give Doom an opportunity to prove that he's smarter than Reed Richards, which he'll never pass up on. Now we pop over to Doom himself, who's chatting with... Victorious, who is a weird centurion-looking character, uh, who is currently overseeing the rebuild of Latveria. And that place always seems to be in a constant state of rebuild, doesn't it? Anyway, Victorious is concerned about potential visitors to Doom Island, to which our main man reveals that he is more than prepared. And so we close out this issue and this half of the miniseries by seeing that Doom has himself a whole fleet of sentinels ready to go, just in case. That's where we leave it, and our next episode will be looking at 4X3, or Fantastic Four X-Men 3, or X-Men Fantastic Four 3, however you want to say it. But before we do that, how about we talk about what we just learned here. Now, I'm still enjoying this quite a bit, though there are maybe a few holes here. Um, I love that we're doing callbacks to the 87 Fantastic Four vs. X-Men miniseries. That, uh, That sort of thing is right up my alley. However, so far, we're getting little inconsistent bits of current year X-continuity. I'm guessing that uh, this was being written over the course of the first few months of the Dawn of X books, uh, perhaps even earlier. So it's hard to really, like, assign blame to anybody for inconsistencies or a perceived lack of attention to detail. Um... This is probably why this story doesn't come with a note to inform us that it likely occurs prior to Kitty's death in Marauders number 6, because I'd wager that the Fantastic Four editorial office probably didn't even know. I mean, that said, this isn't me making excuses. At the end of the day, there are like four editors assigned to this book. You'd, you'd hope there'd be a measure of communication between the offices. Uh, speaking of which, the assortment of cameos we get here showed... Some more, perhaps, in attention to detail, or at least didn't sit right with me. In my opinion, I mean, Colossus has not yet been properly introduced or reintroduced post-Hoxpox. Uh, I highly doubt that his first bit of action was supposed to be, you know, eating up the background in a sort of kind of throwaway fight scene. Uh, Cannonball, if this was Cannonball, because it, I mean, he was blasting like Cannonball. I don't know very many mutants that look like that. 
As far as we know, he doesn't even live here. He's up in Chenandelier or wherever. As for Quanan, I wonder if Dodson was just you know, given a list of Excalibur characters, and since we see Psylocke alongside Rogue and Gambit, maybe just assume that this was what Betsy still looked like? And, and yeah, I'm, I'm totally projecting here, but it, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, another weird bit was how Sue woke up, and how she was able to procure the coordinates for Doom Island. Uh, I feel like I'm missing something here. Did Sue somehow manifest a secondary non-mutation here, which grants her the ability to glean information from other people's minds? Maybe this is obvious, and I'm just being, you know, a dense idiot, and that, that is always a possibility, but uh, I kind of got lost here. Uh, feels like they were, like, running up against their page allotment for the issue and had to wrap it up real quick, and this is how they chose to do it. Uh, keeping with Sue for a bit, her depiction here as a mama lion was pretty cool. It's uh, nice get, seeing her get a little bit of fire, you know? And giving the team their direction rather than just standing by waiting for Reed to give the orders. Um, now, where this issue truly shined for me was in the Cyclops and Doom scenes. I really enjoyed Cyclops acting like Cyclops. Um, he wasn't a, like a psychopath like he'd been for much of the 2010s. And he wasn't the corny suburban sitcom dad that he's been portrayed as since Dawn of X started. His attempts at diplomacy here felt legit, and his warnings to the Quiet Council reminded me of far simpler times, when uh, Scott could be counted on <laughs> to be relatively rational and level-headed. Uh, now, Doom, he was great here too, and, uh, I mean, who could hate any scene that pits him against Val Valeria, right? Uh, their verbal sparring here was a treat. And again, it's one of those things that really makes me miss reading the Fantastic Four. And maybe one of these days it'll be safe to go back. Now, I appreciated Doom's realization that this conflict might come to a head in full-on war. Uh, his self-preservation and sending Latvarian mutants to Doom Island makes a ton of sense. Uh, his desire to fix Franklin where Reed couldn't or wouldn't also makes a ton of sense. Not only does it reinforce the fact that Doom has a soft spot for the kids but it also plays up the idea that Doom will go to any lengths to prove that he's smarter than his old rival. With all that said, I can't say that I'm looking forward to seeing the X-Men fight a bunch of Sentinels, but hopefully that won't eat up too much of the second half of this miniseries. Overall, though, I'm still very, very happy with this series, and I'm optimistic that it'll maintain its level of quality. Few little, you know, nitpicks aside, this is, uh, this is some great stuff, and I'm really having a good time with it. So, uh, I mean, and that's all you can really ask for, you know? If you if you had fun and you're looking forward to more, uh, it doesn't get much better than that when it comes to comic books, does it? Especially current year ones. Now, before I let you guys go, we do have a little bit of a mail to uh, attend to here. We're going to start with Damien, and he's talking about Fallen Angels number six. And he says, oh boy, that was terrible. <laughs> and... Yes, yes it was. <laughs> he continues, I had an actual laugh-out-loud moment when I swiped to the next panel and Quanon had butterfly wings. I'm beginning to wonder if we're being pranked by Marvel. Who thought this was a good idea, and why? And <laughs> I'm sure there were at least like two or three ninth graders who thought this was wildly deep, right? It had to be, right? Oh boy. Damien continues, I need to take back my earlier comment that this could have been one issue of Giant Size X-Men. There really isn't enough in here to be a 20-page story. Totally. Totally. I still maintain that there wasn't even six pages of necessary content here. Um, 
So much wasted time. Uh, we added characters to the cast just so they could stand around and do nothing. We got flashbacks just so they could be revisited in every single subsequent issue. We got poems and prose in order to eat up the info pages, which ate up more pages of the books. This was a pacing disaster. And a true victim. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a victim of the Marvel method of, you know, six issues, dot, 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 or else. I mean... Over the course of these six issues, we had nearly identical missions to check in on black-eyed Apothean children, identical conversations to remind us that Betsy Braddock once inhabited Quinan's body and that caterpillars turned into butterflies. God, you know, usually when I have a problem with single-issue pacing, I tend to give the companies the benefit of the doubt. I fall back to the old chestnut that, you know, quote, this probably reads better in trade. You know, I think that's something that uh, we fence-sitters <laughs> of the reviewing world or the discussion world uh, will will fall back on. You know, I don't want to say every, something's bad, so I try to look at it through a different point of view here. It's like, okay, well, this isn't paced good for a single-issue deal, but read it all in one go, bada-bing, bada-boom, you get something good. Here, though... This story is so damn repetitive and pointless that I'd argue that reading it in collected edition might actually make it worse. It might make everything the 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 repetition easy for me to say even more apparent. And uh, boy, I couldn't imagine reading a whole all 120 some odd pages of, the, of this at once. Oof. Uh, Damien continues. Are we completely sure this isn't an elaborate hoax? <laughs> Maybe it's the first comic written by artificial intelligence. It's a meta-narrative on Hoxbox. It was written by the villain to punish humanity. Probably not. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, I doubt even an AI would be this boilerplate and repetitive. Um, And I mean, maybe I'm an AI because I'm I'm feeling... like, I'm being so repetitive with my comments that Fallen Angels re- was repetitive that I'm wandering into the realm of, like, self-parody here. Like, I'm just sending out a macro <laughs> every time Every time I see Fallen Angels, I say repetitive. Oh, uh, boy. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if they eventually kill Mora solely so they can remove this story from continuity. Personally, I'd give ECT a go if I could remove it from my memory. <laughs> I'm picturing like Mora finding out that this story happening and happened and it being like the start of that weird sideways season of Lost where it's like pouring rain. She screeches up in like an SUV. She comes out, she stares into the camera and yells, we have to go back because this was pretty rotten. Oh boy. Thank you for that laugh, Damien. I, I really needed it and I really appreciated it. <laughs> But thankfully, we're done with Fallen Angels, uh, as, as far as I can tell. I mean, who knows what the next month's solicits will bring, but uh, fingers crossed that uh, this is what it is. Uh, next we have next we have uh, a part of a conversation I had with, uh, with our friend Evan Bevins here discussing X-Men number one. And I'm including this because uh, it made me think of things I hadn't thought of. And uh, he says... I finished Hoxpox and I'm into Dawn of X. I totally thought the, th- thought the same thing about Cyclops and Polaris in X-Men number one, but don't think it was addressed in any of the first six issues. And that's a reference to uh, Cyclops and Polaris having like a weird sort of um, flirtation. Uh, or maybe not so much a flirtation, but just the way... 
the way the dialogue went, it felt it felt like they were together in a way. Um, Cyclops was talking about all the things he has, and he says, and he turns to Polaris and he says, "I have you," as though like you know they have each other. They're together. Not as a, you know, brother-sister mutant thing, but as a uh, romantic entanglement. Plus the fact that she refused to come back to Summer House because Havoc was going to be there led me to believe that perhaps there was some sort of a dalliance between Scott and Lorna. And uh, it doesn't get mentioned again. I'm not even sure if Lorna's been in a comic since then. I'm trying to think back. She hasn't been prominent, that's for sure. She might have been in the background of a panel or two, but... We haven't seen her since then, so uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that's all about, but I'm I'm guessing that that's probably just me thinking too hard on something and uh, really not having much in the way of uh, evidence. Uh, Evan continues, I came up with a weird conspiracy theory involving Professor X tweaking the resurrected Cyclops' mind to make him attracted to Polaris to sort of unite the houses of Summers and M., but that could have been no, done with Havoc, so that's probably wrong. And that's a really interesting point that I hadn't considered here, that uh, we do have these disparate houses on Krakoa, and I think a lot of us have posited that Professor X is manipulating. Um, he's pulling some strings with these resurrections here. We don't know the extent of his level of control over the resurrections, so it stands to reason after everything we know about Xavier and how little we've grown to trust him, especially in this weird new role, there certainly could be a uh, a, a train of thought to to put the house, the summer house, and the house of M on some sort of uh, some sort of unity, some sort of united front, and uh, that reminds me a lot of um, the the Alan Moore pitch for Twilight of the Superheroes uh, that. We actually covered here on an episode of Weird Comics History on this channel. I think it was episode 23, 22 or 23. I think it was 23, though, uh, where this is a Twilight of the Superheroes written by Alan Moore. And it's a it's not so far flung in future story uh, of the DC superheroes, but they're all separated into houses. You have like the, the House of Steel for the Superman family. You have the House of Thunder for the Captain Marvel family. The House of Titans for the Titans. And uh, the whole crux of the story is that um, the House of Steel and the House of Thunder, there's going to be a wedding. Uh, Mary Marvel Jr. is going to be part of an arranged marriage with Superboy. So this is an attempt to join the House of Thunder with the House of Steel, you know, and that when when Evan brought up having Cyclops attracted to Polaris, <laughs> I immediately thought of Twilight of the Superheroes here because of uh, the doing, combining forces for political clout and political power. It's an interesting uh, train of thought, and to think that maybe Xavier might uh, might be behind something like that is uh, is scary and also very very interesting. There's a lot of meat on that bone. Should they actually go down that path, which remains to be seen, may never be seen, but uh, it's definitely fun food for thought for sure. So thank you so much for uh, filling my brain with that today, Evan. I really appreciate that. It really helped me to. Uh, First, it reminded me of that scene, and second, it allowed me to look at it a different way. So thank you. And we're going to wrap up with a tweet from Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom. 
He says, I listened to Major X Lapsed Episode 1 and would like to hear you cover the rest. And I think you're the only one. <laughs> Major X Lapsed flopped. Oh boy. <laughs> Nobody wanted to hear that. I, uh, I knew it would be divisive. I was hopeful. You know, worst case scenario, it would be divisive, but uh, no, it was kind of just a uh, just just nothing. <laughs> it was nothing. So uh, thank you for that, uh, Andrew. I'm, I'm glad you listened to it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And uh, I am still considering uh, covering the rest of that run. Uh, I I had fun with it. Um, it's something that I don't want to say I could turn my brain off during it, but compared to a Hox Pox Docs book. It's a lot more what you see is what you get You know, there isn't so much I'm not looking for symbols everywhere I'm not looking to be the smartest X-Fan in the room by pointing something out That's never been pointed out before It's just fun, silly comics It's uh, really I mean, I, I, said, I think I said in the announcement That uh, we're going to party like it's 1991 And that's exactly how it felt It uh, made no mistake about it It didn't try to be something it wasn't It was just a fun read And, uh and if you you know if you stop to think about it, it is what it is. And if uh, if that's for you, then you're gonna love it. If it's not for you, you're gonna hate it. So, you know, I, I definitely appreciate you checking it out. And uh, I am I still do have designs on uh, on wrapping up Major X Lapsed, all seven episodes. I suppose it'll be when all said and done. Uh, at least at this point, they haven't announced a Major X two yet. But uh, <laughs> I suppose we'll see. But thank you so much. And. Uh, if anybody else would like to write in and tell me how much you hated or loved Major X Lapsed or didn't even know it existed, please do so. You could reach me at uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could find show notes and stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. And, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about the 12 again uh, because I'm starting a project there. I actually already started it. I wax nostalgic and I over-romanticize the concept of the 12 so much and uh, for the longest time, I was going to put together a big project on the origins of the Twelve. It was going to be a Weird Comics History episode. Then I decided it was going to be a Cosmic Treadmill episode, because I was doing a lot of X-Men mysteries. Um, we already did the X-Trader. Uh, we did uh, the Brotherhood with the writer X, you know. Uh, we were going to do the Third Summer's Brother. We were going to do the Twelve. There was just a few of these X-Mysteries that I wanted to have entire episodes on, but unfortunately we never got around to doing them. And I kind of just uh, put the put them in my back pocket, you know, and figured, eh, maybe one of these days I'll get around to it. But today... As or actually, as you're listening to this, a couple days ago at the blog, I started with a look at X Factor number thirteen from 1987, which was the first mention of the twelve, and I intend to follow through and cover all the mentions of the twelve, so we can watch it evolve and change and be abandoned and be can be re- resumed when it's a totally different thing that really sucked. But uh, I think it'll be a good time, and then ultimately, when I'm done with it. I'll have a, I'll probably have a pretty good script going, so I could do a uh, maybe a Chris's on Infinite Earths episode covering the entire concept of the twelve. Uh, just yeah, commit something to audio, right? But uh, but yeah, if, if you're interested in seeing what this twelve is that I've been, you know, whinging about ever since we started this, uh, you could find it at Chris's on Infinite Earths.com. 
And that'll be the October 22nd post for the first one. I'll have a tag on it for the 12th, so it should be easy to find everything that's written there, and I'll probably do a little side page for it as well. But for now, it's it started. <laughs> and uh, if Blogger is a little bit more cooperative over the next several days, I'll have many more parts up before you know it. Um, what else? What else? You can find uh, show notes at that place. You can find uh, xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can find the Facebook group at 90s X-Men, and also the full audio archives, including that uh, exhaustive look at uh, Twilight of the Superheroes at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll just link to Twilight of the Superheroes in today's show notes, just uh, for complete completionist sake and uh, for ease, because uh, the channel has a lot of stuff on it, and it could be hard to find something. So I got your back. I'll, I'll have it there. So hopefully... Anybody who didn't hear it, who might want to hear it, can hear it. But I think that's where we'll leave it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for hanging out and uh, spending your time with me as we rapidly approach the landmark, milestone, multi-covered 50th episode of this program. So thank you all so, so much. It means more to me than I can even put into words, and uh, that is not as sarcastic as it sounds, trust me. But till next time, when we uh, cover... X-Men plus Fantastic Four number three. I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 49 of X-Laps. We're just one short of 50. How about that? Uh, Today, we're going to continue our look at the X-Men Plus Fantastic Four miniseries with X-Men Plus Fantastic Four number three. Now, this one had a June 2019 cover date, and the story is called To the Victor, written by Chip Zosky with pencils by Terry Dodson, inks by Rachel Dodson and Ransom Getty, Colors, Laura Martin, Andrew Crossley, and Peter Pantasis. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Edits, Shannon Andrews Balesteros, Martin Byro, Alana Smith, Tom Brevoort, and C.B. Sabolsky. So, 
really, really heavy on the editing, so I'm guessing this is going to be a very tight story, right? No mistakes, no nothing. Uh, Cover price, $3.99, went on sale March 25th of 2020. And this is uh, right around the time, or right before the time that, uh, well, the world shut down. So the fourth and final issue wouldn't come out for uh, another four months. So uh, we'll talk about that one next episode, though. But uh, let's hop right in. Now we open with the X-Men in hot pursuit of the Fantastic Four's Fantastic Car, as they are fleeing Krakoa and headed to the somehow procured coordinates of Doom Island. Now... We jump into the X-Men's jet here, and after some chatting, uh, Cyclops decides to take the reins, and uh, by reins, I mean he dons a new piece of precision headwear so that he can uh, blast the bejesus out of the Fantastic Four, which is exactly what he does. Uh, I mean, sure, the, the Reeds and the Sues should be able to survive this sort of assault, but still, this is some highly villainous behavior from our X-Men, isn't it? Eh, not sure I like it. So... Fantastica gets blasted, goes boom, and Sue is able to use a force field bubble for the trillionth time this miniseries, and gently lowers her team down to the island below, which, as luck would have it, is Doom Island. So I gotta ask, if Scott didn't blast them, would they have just flown right past it? I don't know. So, the FF are safe, but then, the X-Men attack. Nightcrawler bamfs Wolverine into the sky so he can swipe at the Human Torch with his claws out. I'm sorry, gang. I can't let this go. Um, We've seen Wolverine a lot in this story, and every time we see him, you know... And this is a story that's heroes versus heroes. These are people who've known each other and been friendly with each other for a very long time, and every time Wolverine's on panel, he's got his damn claws out. Like, are we to believe he's actually swiping at Johnny Storm with the intent to kill him? Because, I mean, from the looks of this panel, he actually makes contact. There's no blood, but still, Johnny does let out a scream. So, uh, I'm sure it wasn't a comfortable glance here. Then, we have Rogue swooping in to clobber the thing. And, uh, you ever notice how, like, online, like, 80% of the people spell Rogue's name as Rouge? I remember back on Usenet, uh, folks would talk about how much they loved, you know, Gambit and Rouge. To which, uh, the rest of us would reply that Gambit doesn't wear makeup. And that joke often went over, you know, whoever said its head, and uh, hopefully it doesn't go over everybody's head here. But uh, that always kind of got under my skin. It's like, it's it's not hard to spell that, just <laughs> look it up. Uh, now, Wolverine is all done eviscerating the Human Torch. He now sets his sights on Mr. Fantastic. Lucky for Reed, Sue encases him in a force field bubble for the trillion and one time. Sue then starts giving uh, marching orders... But then Johnny starts telling her how things are actually going to go right now. You see, there was a method to Wolverine clawing at Johnny. Now, even without wearing a precision helmet, Logan was somehow able to swipe just deep enough to disrupt his helmet's telepath-blocking abilities. And so now Emma Frost is in the driver's seat. She's in Johnny's head. And the first thing she does is threaten to uh, put the Fantastic Four on trial because they illegally entered Krakoa. Okay. Hey, you know what? We haven't had a roll call yet. How about we do it? We got the feared and hated, and they consist of Call Me Kate, Storm, Charles Xavier, Wolverine, Magneto, Cyclops, Beast, Emma Frost, Nightcrawler, and Rogue. Then we got four fearless friends, of which, of course, there are six. Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Woman, Human Torch, Thing, Franklin, and Val. Poor Doctor Doom doesn't get a bubble here, but uh, he will loom large. Uh, Back to comics, and hey... There he is, back to Doom. 
Now, Doom actually shows up on the beach where the heroes are fighting, and uh, this is thankfully enough to get them to stop you know, trying to kill one another, at least for the moment. Reed and Sue demand to know where their kids are, and Magneto demands to know where those X-Men are. Doom takes a look at Magneto, he takes a look at Wolverine, and makes a glib comment about Magneto being able to, you know, do that thing that he did to Wolverine back in the Fatal Attractions event in 1993. Which, I mean, if we stop and think about that, it makes me wonder how Logan could be so forgiving of Magneto. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Though I guess that's a, probably a discussion we can save for another day. Now, Wolverine, he's running out of patience. He wants to know where Kate is. I hate that we're supposed to be calling her Kate now, but it's, like, almost aggressively irritating seeing Wolverine play along with it. Anyway, no sooner does he ask than she appears. Kitty and the Marauders arrive and inform their teammates that they've made a deal with Doom. They explain the whole fixing Franklin thing, and Doom decides to twist the knife a bit by reminding everyone that he's willing and able to do what Reed Richards cannot or will not. Magneto takes issue with Kitty making this deal in the first place, and they have a little bit of a back and forth. At the end of the day, what's done is done, and the arrangement will proceed as is. Doom decides to give everyone the lay of the land. You see, he's going to let Beast, Reed, Kitty, and Charles accompany him to the lab to oversee this process. The rest of the heroes, however, must remain on the beach, which is to say they are not to enter any occupied areas, i.e. the town, on Doom Island. He reminds them, and us, that Doom Island is considered Latvarian land, and here, Doom makes all the rules. We jump inside the lab here, where Franklin and Val are basically having the same conversation they had last issue. Uh, Franklin's a bit worried about the procedure, and yeah, rightly so. Val's trying to comfort him, but being kind of a jerk about it. Their chat is interrupted by the arrival of Doom and the gang. Now, Reed tries to reason with Franklin. He says he'd like for them all to go home. Well, sorry, Dad Franklin ain't feeling it. Reed doesn't trust Doom, which, yeah, stands to reason. Xavier chimes in, and uh, while he's certain that Doom's got some sort of ulterior motive, he, he agrees that they should still proceed with this experiment. Doom lets everyone present know that he's an open book when it comes to this little endeavor, and he invites everyone to go over his work here with their finest tooth combs. Back outside, Wolverine and Storm talk about how little they care for this entire situation. They're soon joined by Emma, Scott, and Magneto, who very much feel the same. Emma comments that her powers appear to be hindered here, which leads her to assume that Doom is probably hiding something. Uh, yeah, you think? She tries to make out the Ladvarian mutants here, but uh, is unable to get anything other than hazy thoughts. She's thinking, hey, we should probably go snag him while Doom's otherwise occupied trying to fix Franklin. Cyclops here tries putting his foot down. After all, Xavier agreed to Doom's terms and that the heroes should remain on the beach and not enter town. Emma thinks this is adorable and mocks, mocks Scott for being dense, and uh, restates her point that this is the most opportune time to make their rescue play. She even suggests recruiting the most powerful character in the Marvel Universe, the Invisible Woman, to help get them in and out of town, un, you know, undetected. The X-Men decide to break into two groups, with Cyclops and Storm hanging back on the beach to distract, quote, Doom's Cabana Boys, while the rest of them head into town. Magneto says if they find out that any of these mutants were being mistreated, then uh, Latveria will suffer. We jump to an info page. This is Reed Richards' journal entry 66203 a 
Doom Island, and it's a it's just a picture of Doom Island. Um, we do find out that it has an estimated population of twenty five hundred, and has like a belt of a populated area in the middle of the thing. We probably didn't need to expend an entire page on this, but what are you gonna do? We jump back to the lab, and we get a little bit more about this god power theory. Uh, Doom, of course, regards the god power instead as Von Doom particles, which eh, isn't quite catchy to say, is it? Uh, You'd think Doom would have figured out a more creative term for it, but what are you going to do? Anywho, his procedure is to futz with Franklin's cells to facilitate his being able to access this other dimensional power source, or something. Now, Hank McCoy, he ain't so sure what to think here. He seems to get a bit stuck on the theory, in that it suggests that none of them actually have powers. They can only access them where others can't. And this is some sort of kind of high-concept stuff here. I guess it's, you know, the, the, the hox-pox-dox milieu here is passing through to the Fantastic Four office. And honestly, I'm not entirely sure where I fall on it. We'll talk more about it toward the end of the show. Uh, now here, in the middle of Doom's explanation, he's talking about god power. He's talking about mito- mitochondria and cells. Xavier decides this is the best time to pipe in to revisit Latveria not signing the Krakoan Treaty. I mean, Charles, time and place, come on. Doom cuts him off, and he says, Make no mistake, Doom recognizes that Krakoa is a country, but he ain't gonna play the game. He's uh, pretty peeved that Xavier and company now have this swagger of superiority, and you know he ain't wrong. He's annoyed that everything he has, that he, he he's earned, he's worked for it, he's built to it, while the mutants were just lucky enough to be born into power. Again... He ain't wrong. So, let's rejoin our recon team. Uh, I guess they were they were apparently able to convince the most powerful character in the Marvel Universe, the Invisible Woman, to help them with their task. We didn't see the scene, but here we are. Now, they enter a mutant home in town, only to find these young muties are actually petrified of the Krakowans. They call them enemies of Latveria and threaten to alert Master Doom. Emma and Magneto try to calm the kids down, but before they can do so, Magneto spies a doom-shaped shadow lingering outside the window. And we also find out here from Emma that these mutant children, or these young mutants, I guess, they, you know, they sent out the signal to Krakoa. They wanted help, so we don't know what's going on here. Anyway, bada-bing, bada-doom. Looks like we got us an infestation of doombots. Which, uh, every time I tried typing Doombots into my, my notes here, I, I typed Doom Boys. You know, the T and the Y are so close to each other, it's every time, Doom Boys. So, uh, eh, I don't know. Uh, Magneto tries to use their powers on the Doom Boys, only to learn that he cannot. Huh. Emma then tries to calm her partners down because she senses something a little bit off about these Doombots. Hmm. Well, that ain't gonna stop Wolverine, though, who, for the past three issues, has really had a hankering to skewer somebody or something. And so he runs his claws right through the belly of this Doombot. Only, uh, it's not a Doombot. It's an actual living, breathing human. Or at least it was. Now, while this was going on, Reed is still trying to make peace with the decision his son has made in proceeding with this procedure. Doom hits a button and Franklin gets zapped with a soft blue light. Just then, however, Doom is alerted to the fact that not only did the heroes disobey his orders and go into town, but one of them actually just killed a Latvarian. 
We wrap up with Doom unleashing his army of Doom Sentinels to deal with this unforgivable act of aggression. Next episode, we will wrap up X-Men plus Fantastic Four in our landmark, milestone, 50th episode of X-Lapsed. But uh, before we do that, let's talk about what we just read. I'm a little less sure how I feel about this issue as I was the prior two. Uh, There's a lot to like here, but some of it didn't quite sit right with me. I mean, I'm coming at this as an X-Men fan first. You know, that's that's my those are my guys, that's my team. If you pit the X-Men up against any other group, I'm always going to side with the X-Men. And I really, really don't care for the way they're being portrayed here. I don't understand why Marvel has this need to prop up all of their other heroes as being above or better or more righteous than the X-Men. But time after time, these are the only stories we get. Anytime the X-Men cross paths with anybody... They come across looking like villains. I mean, AVX, you know, the X-Men cross paths with the Avengers and they come across as villains in that story. The X-Men versus the boring-ass Inhumans. The X-Men don't just look like villains, they look like insane villains. X-Men versus the even more boring-ass S.H.I.E.L.D. The X-Men look like criminals. And here, the X-Men vs. the Fantastic Four, the X-Men look like villains who are like bloodthirsty villains. They really want to fight. I, And it's, it's not that they're being written as less good than these other characters. They're straight out, flat out being written as bad guys. I don't like that. I find it unnecessary, and it really speaks to how Marvel has more or less decimated their villain roster. Are there even bad guys anymore? Right? I mean, hell, doesn't, like, friggin' Venom have a half-dozen ongoing series now? Do we have bad guys anymore? I mean, the X-Men books, all the bad guys are good guys now. Well, the, bad guys na- the bad guys now are just people in suits. This is like the old Superman problem from the, from the uh, you know, the early burn era where it's like, who do you put against Superman? Oh, guys in suits. Scientists. That's what we're getting here for the X-Men, and this is what we're getting for just villains straight away. So, I mean, the X-Men, I guess, have to fill that role. They're being written as bad guys, and I tell you, I'm kind of over it. Um, Another thing about this that I'm kind of over is how hard we're pushing that the Invisible Woman is the most powerful character in the Marvel Universe. It feels like we're being beaten over the head with this, which only serves to tell me that there's maybe something of an agenda here at play. Like, they really want us to know how powerful she is. And as such, it doesn't feel genuine, it doesn't feel natural, it feels very much forced to the forefront, and as such, doesn't have near the kind of impact it might otherwise have. I mean, it doesn't really make your character look overly powerful if everyone around them is being written as being particularly useless, right? I mean, the Fantastic Four outside of Sue are coming across like they're they're tripping over their own feet. I I don't know what the, what the push is here. Uh, I think... As much as, as much as I loathe saying we can all agree, but I think we can all agree the Invisible Woman is powerful. <laughs> and, but it, to, to make her look exceptionally powerful to the expense of everybody else on the page, you ain't helping anybody in that case. Um, let's talk about God Power. Now, I said it, I believe, last episode, but uh, this concept reminds me of the Speed Force over in the Flash comics. And that is, of course, assuming that I'm understanding it right. 
The way I'm getting it is super characters, metahumans, whatever you want to call them, they don't actually have an innate power, but instead they have the ability to tap into some other dimensional power, I think. Now, The Flash is one of my favorites over at DC. I've, I've got a, a run of Flash comics that go back before I was born. I'm only missing a handful of issues from you know the time I popped onto this planet till now for, for The Flash. But The Speed Force, to me... Always felt kind of cheap uh, Just as this concept of god power does here And again This is assuming that I'm even understanding it right in the first place I could be completely out to lunch on this But I mean you can look at any issue of the flesh Since the introduction of the speed force concept Any issue Wally or Barry or whoever's wearing the costume Can't go more than a page or two Without bringing it up in conversation or narration It's basically a crutch now, as a storytelling device, I'd say it works once, twice before feeling stale. Um, unfortunately, the writers haven't gotten the memo. Or maybe I'm alone in finding the idea particularly uninteresting. It's like, oh, we, we lost access to the Speed Force. Oh, we're stuck in the Speed Force. There's only so many ways you can do it. And the fact that you open up any Flash comic from the past you know, 25 years, and that's all they're talking about. He's fighting another speedster, an evil speedster, and they're complaining about the speed force over and over again. So I'm hoping that this god power concept, again, if I'm understanding it right, doesn't really become a thing at Marvel. Because I'd really hate to have to, you know, hear about it every few panels like I do over at DC. So as a concept, right, or a thought exercise, I'm okay with it. In practice... If this becomes a thing, I'm probably going to hate it. But uh, we won't worry about that just yet. Now, we have Emma and the gang sneaking into town to rescue the Latvarian mutants. I was kind of digging the idea here that, uh, you know, when we had these young mutants scared, right? So I was loving this idea that the X-Men just assumed that these mutants would like to return to Krakoa with them because it's their birthright, and of course you would. And then we're, like, surprised when they found out they didn't. I thought that was a very interesting curveball, but then Emma reveals that these young mutants actually, you know, sent out the distress call. They wanted to go to Krakoa, which tells me that Doom messed with their minds or something, rather than, you know, they just wanted to remain on the island. I think it would have been much more interesting if these young mutants just wanted nothing to do with Krakoa, without any sort of Doom wrinkle, right? But, I mean, what are you going to do? We only got one more issue, so we got to get some stuff done. Uh, Wolverine actually murdering a Latverian. Yeah, that's something that happened, isn't it? And I tell you what, I mean, if you've got razor-sharp adamantium claws and you refuse to holster them, this is exactly the sort of thing that's going to happen. Um, I'm not sure how or if the X-Men will be able to walk this one back. You know, they, they killed a civilian, right? Of course, he was being used by Doom as a, you know, fake-ass Doom bot, but still... You know, he was run through with razor-sharp adamantium claws. Uh, But, you know, we'll find out. I'm glad that we got another mostly Sentinel-free issue because I was a little concerned that this was all going to be X-Men Fantastic Four putting their differences aside to fight Sentinels. So I'm glad we got another issue without that, but I'm already, you know, kind of bracing for a robot-filled conclusion. But that'll be a discussion for another day. Overall... Despite my concerns and complaints, because I am coming across probably particularly negative about this, um, despite all that, I'm having a mostly good time with this miniseries. Um, 
There is a little bit of doubt lingering in my head due to something that I just learned about this miniseries, which I'll share with you all in just a moment. But for the most part, this is good stuff. Um, I've said it before, I wouldn't mind a Zarsky uh, dodson fantastic Four run. I think that could be a lot of fun. Um, I don't particularly care for how the X-Men are coming across here, but... I can't blame that on the writer. I can't blame that on the creative team. I think that's just the role of the X-Men now. Is just, uh, we don't have enough bad guys. So, if the X-Men cross paths with anybody, guess who's gonna be the bad guy? It's unfortunate, but it's, uh, you know, it is Marvel of the 21st century, and that's... And, and do they have the movie rights yet? Uh, maybe when they get the movie rights, for sure, then we'll start seeing the X-Men do heroic things again, but, uh, I guess till then, we just have to do with what we do. But I think that's all I got to say about X-Men plus Fantastic Four number three. But before I let you go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We got a couple of uh, short messages. Uh, first one's from Damien, and he's talking about X-Men plus Fantastic Four number two. He says, I'm really enjoying 4X so far. The original series back in 1987 remains my favorite Fantastic Four story, so it's great to see so many references. You're right that the Doom and Valeria relationship lifts the whole book. And yeah, um, I'm loving the references. I think the references in those first two issues were great. Um, uh, not only for the fact that, you know, I'm insane and I love having <laughs> clarification on what did happen, but uh, I just thought it really, uh, it helped to tie things together. It made things feel natural. It also told me that the person who wrote this read that. And uh, I mean, that doesn't sound like much, but I, I think we're in a world now where source material and inspiration is not read by by uh, the new breed of writers. So it's nice to see that uh, that they did do some time. You know, they 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 read the, what came before. I really appreciate that. Uh, the Val and Doom relationship is always it's adorable. It's so much fun uh, to see. You know this this little kid with Doctor Friggin Doom wrapped around her little finger. I, I think that's a lot of fun. And they got this like weird like contentious. You know, can you top this? Uh, who's smarter than who? Sort of thing. W without like the meanness uh, and the coldness of the Reed and Doom relationship, it's it, it's really cool. I like it a lot. Uh, back to Damien. You mentioned how difficult it is to place this series in continuity. Cannonball should not be in this story. You could no prize it by saying that Bobby gave him a Krakoan gateway flower, but I don't see him visiting without his family. And yeah, that's true. His family, as boring as they are. Yeah, he wouldn't be here alone. So I'm guessing that that was probably just a uh, a gaffe um, in attention to detail. Which, again, this is uh, this is a different editorial office. It's I don't know. I, I always go back to the shooter days where everything had a purpose. Everybody knew where every character was. If a character had his own miniseries, they were pulled out of their main book. I'd love to go back to something kind of like that, but I know that that time has passed, unfortunately. Uh, I don't think anyone but us noticed that Cannonball was there in the first place. And even if other people were like, hey, there's Cannonball, they wouldn't have any reason to believe that he shouldn't be there. That's just uh, the way things go now. Because I'm, I'm guessing Wolverine was probably in five or six books this month. So <laughs> who knows? Uh, Damien continues. And this is the thing I just learned about this miniseries. Damien continues, The weirdest thing about this series is that apparently when Chip Zarsky proposed the series, Hickman added the Cyclops and Fantastic Four scene to House of X number one to set this up. 
That means our favorite bit of the first issue existed solely to pimp a spin-off. It seemed so integral. Oh, man. That is so disappointing. <laughs> sucks. Oh, man, that was... I'm pretty sure I said uh, way back in the first episode of this program that that was my favorite scene in the entire issue because I've been waiting for the whole Franklin thing to come in the in between these two uh, these two families. And I was so psyched for it because... I mean, I've been I've just been waiting for it, and finally it's going to be addressed, and finally there's like a an organic reason for it to happen, where it just won't be one day Professor X wakes up and says, "Hey, why isn't Franklin with us?" This is instead, you know, about building a mutant society and and having Krakoa as a mutant birthright. So it makes perfect sense for this story to be happening now, but to find out that uh, to find out that it wasn't part of the Hickman plan. Ah, man, that sucks. Uh, that really takes the wind out of my sails. Uh, I mean, I was expecting so much more out of this miniseries, and I was hopeful that what came out of it was going to inform, like, so much of the uh, Dawn of X world. I was hoping that uh, that we would know that this series happened, right? Because so, so often we'll get miniseries where you read them or you don't, it doesn't matter. This one, I thought was going to sidestep that. This one, I thought was going to be like, it's like, well, you want to know what happened? You need to read this. Like, all the books going forward, you're going to need, you're going to need to know what happened here in order to uh, get the most out of it. Starting to feel like that's not the case. Um, Of course, we're also, you know, we've also been hindered by the pandemic and the fact that this miniseries i think this issue came out in april or something the next one won't come out again until oh no this one came out in march the next one doesn't come out until july so i guess you can't really hold everything back but uh i don't know it's just that's very disappointing to me um i had a lot of uh a lot of my ex eggs were were gold balls in in this basket (laughs) and uh to find out that uh it was an afterthought and not even a hickman afterthought yeah, that kind of stinks, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> that kind of stinks, but, uh, Damien wraps up with, in the feedback section of the prior episode, you spoke about Lorna Dane. She does reappear soon. She's a member of X-Factor when that launches, and she plays a key role in the first two episodes of X of Tens. I do think the relationship between Scott and Lorna in X-Men number one is unintentional. They simply forgot that X-Men fans are primed to see soap opera shenanigans and everything. And yes, you are 100% right, because, because, I mean, that's the way X-Men comics were for so long, especially, you know, during during my formative years, where any sideways glance, uh, I always felt there was meaning to it. Any kind of uh, accidental, you know, accidental knuckle brush when somebody walks past another person was was suspect, and, uh, and every... Every inflection that you can project into a piece of dialogue was legit, you know? So, yeah, I'm guessing that uh, that I simply read too much into uh, the Scott telling Lorna that he has her. And it, where it was more of a I have you in the mutant sister sense rather than the love interest sense. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear that she'll be back. Um, X-Factor, uh, I'm wondering what that's going to be all about. Uh, from what I've seen on the covers, it looks like X-Factor is a like a uh, security force or like a, like a police uh, for, for Krakoa. I could be completely wrong. I'm just going by the covers. But uh, 
I'm looking forward to it. And I think we'll be getting to that. Uh, no, I wouldn't. I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> We'll get to it eventually, <laughs> but I am looking forward to it. Uh, thank you uh, so much for the message, Damien. And I'm—I'd be interested to hear your uh, final thoughts on uh, on X Men Fantastic Four when uh, when we're all done with it. I want to hear uh, if it lived up to its expectations for you. I don't know if it's going to live up to the expectations for me yet. I haven't read the fourth issue, but uh, I'm interested to hear uh, your thoughts on it overall. See if it's uh, not so much an evergreen, but uh, something that'll be integral. Or not So thank you And I'm looking forward To hearing from you On that Uh, We're going to wrap up With a message From Evan Bevins On Excalibur number one Now he says On Excalibur number one I've been pronouncing Apocalypse's name as Ah But your way Is much more amusing And thank you I I I thought When I did it When I committed to the bit Which is one of the hardest Things you can do If you're sitting alone Talking into a microphone By yourself like Like a crazy person Committing to the bit Because you don't have an audience in front of you I, I don't even have any of my pets in the room with me So you don't know how things are going to land And when I said, hey And I'm like, I, I must look like the I must look and sound like the biggest You know, jackass Doing that But uh, but so far, people have dug the A So that's good <laughs> That's a good thing um, Evan wraps up with I like the cast here and the setup Having Betsy as Captain Britain but not in Britain Ah, trying to convince everyone he's good But the magic stuff and the execution didn't stick for me I laughed every time you referred to Morgan's minions as LARPers Because <laughs> they did seem like it, right? They seemed like they were uh, Like they should be carrying around bags of rice And throwing them at like at like tin to make the the lightning sound and, and so they can yell lightning bolt lightning bolt um and you know you brought up a point here that i neglected um the fact that betsy is captain britain but she doesn't live in britain she lives on krakoa that's interesting that's not something i thought of before uh that is a pretty cool thing i wonder if they'll explore that as a or maybe they haven't. I just haven't noticed it. But I wonder if that'll be something that comes up in a in a you know in a way that they have to deal with it. And uh, yes, yeah, similar to you, the magic stuff that didn't work for me. That never works for me. Um, I, I like to say that me and Superman have the same weaknesses, and that's magic. <laughs> Superman can't deal with it, and neither can I. Uh, magic just makes everything a little too easy and a little too convenient. And I mean, though we are reading about books with a. Uh, Either superpowers or god power, but <laughs> magic is kind of where I is kind of where I start to glaze over, and the fact that Excalibur is so overly reliant on uh, on magic and magical tropes and fantasy and fantasious elements, I suppose it's uh, it's hard to relate uh, for me. Um, where I where I really enjoy it is the interpersonal stuff, which I think uh, Teeny Howard, I think she she does really good with that. It's just when we go into this like weird dungeon master LARPing thing, it's just like, eh, can we just not? Can we just skip these pages? You know, if I was a lesser producer, I would just skip the pages. <laughs> Be like, we're going to jump ahead three pages to where Richter and Gambit are having a conversation. But uh, no, can't do that. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much for reaching out, Evan. I always appreciate hearing from you. And uh, I'll be interested to hear uh, your thoughts on uh, on more of the Dawn of X books as you, uh, as you get to them. Um, we do have some listeners who are just getting through the uh, the Hoxpox era here with uh, with Al and uh, and Evan and, and maybe some others who haven't reached out yet. I'm 
definitely interested in hearing your thoughts on the uh, at least the first issues of the uh, of the Wave One. You know, uh, things like X Force, which ended on a massive cliffhanger. Things like Fallen Angels, which kind of stunk on ice. Um, I, I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on on just what directions we're going here. If it met your expectations, or if it's you know so different from Hox Pox that it's uh, a little bit of a turnoff. So. Definitely. Uh, let me know how you th- feel about those things. And uh, anybody, if anybody would like to reach out and let me know how you feel about these sort of things, or any sort of things, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts and a whole bunch of stuff at, where is my web? ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com. Yeah, that's the website that I've been maintaining for five years and for totally spaced the name. Uh, you can also go to xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com to find all the episodes of this program and be able to listen to them in the proper order. Uh, you can find the Facebook group at 90s X-Men and the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But I think that's where we'll put a pin in it, and uh, that's where I'll leave you before our giant, well, probably normal-sized... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and probably just as well received 50th episode of X Lapsed, which we will, uh, in which we will wrap up this uh, X Men Plus Fantastic Four miniseries. But until then, one more massive thank you to everyone for listening and hanging out and sharing your time with me. And uh, as always, until next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. I want to welcome everyone to episode 50 of X-Lapse, the big milestone only to me episode. Uh, Before I go into anything here, I would like to just thank everyone for uh, sticking around for uh, this little uh, project up to this point. It really means a lot to me. And uh, before we actually get into our uh, discussion of uh, X-Men Fantastic Four number four, 
I want to take a page out of uh, another show that I do, uh, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and uh, maybe uh, tell a little story, <laughs> a little non-comics-related story, or non-completely comics-related story. Um, just uh, maybe give a little bit of insight as to why this episode is so important to me personally. And uh, I don't want this to turn into a any sort of a pity party or any sort of uh, me, you know, waving my fist in the air about how bad current year was. Because, I mean, we all know it was a rotten year. Um, but uh, this year, um, I, I don't want to say professionally, because this isn't a professional thing in the slightest. But uh, uh, hobby-wise, I guess, um, a lot of things happened that um, really uh, made me question whether or not I'd still be doing what I'm doing right now. And I mean, I ain't doing anything big here. This is just me sitting in a room by myself talking into a microphone. So it's not like, I mean, I, I ain't changing any lives here. It's just you know me sharing some thoughts about stuff I read. But uh, I wasn't sure I'd be doing this anymore um, after a few things that happened this year. And if you'll indulge me, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about that before we get into the actual comics content. Um, if this ain't your thing, I'm going to try to remember to timestamp when I start talking about the comic. I, I can't promise that I will, because uh, I don't know how long I'm going to be talking. <laughs> I very well might forget. Um, I'd like to remember, but uh, I mean, if, if me talking about... Uh, stuff that isn't X-Men Fantastic Four um, isn't your bag... Um, I just skipped to later. Uh, you know, <laughs> no hard feelings. We're all still friends. But uh, I just want to share a few things here to uh, just talk about why this, uh, why I, I'm taking this milestone as something far bigger than it has any right to be. And uh, it's simply because I never thought it was going to be. Um, I never thought episode one was going to be of this program or of any program. So, uh, without any further vamping, <laughs> let me, uh, try and give you all some context. And these are stories that, uh, in part I've told on other programs, but I don't know how much crossover there is between this show and some other shows. Uh, I, I generally assume there's none. So, um, if you're hearing some of this for the second time, I, I apologize, but, uh, a uh, little bit of context, just to frame this here and uh, give everyone a better idea of the uh, the just what I'm thinking. Um, I give the uh, I, I give the archive address at the end of every episode, and uh, that archive is chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and uh, I'm Chris. Um, in case you don't know, in case you're new to this channel, there was also a Reggie. Um, Reggie was my uh, partner for uh, many years, uh, going on a half decade. He and I put together programs um, with uh, regularity. And uh, Christmas Day of 2019, he suffered a stroke. And he called me a couple days later. It was on my birthday, actually, December 27th. He called me that morning and told me what had happened. And... Uh, it all sounded very, very final. He uh, he told me what went down and, and what he had uh, lost the ability to do, which 
He was unable to uh, read for great lengths of time, and uh, he was partially blind. And it really, it really hit me. I, I haven't, I hadn't had to uh, face that, something like that before from someone who was close to me in age um, and someone I was working closely with. Uh, and uh, at that point, I kind of stopped putting together shows. I stopped making uh, podcasts, and uh, I, for the first time in many years, I felt um, what I can only describe as mic fright. I, I, I couldn't picture myself sitting behind a microphone in my empty room, talking about anything, comics, anything. Just uh, I, I was petrified of uh, of doing it. And I I couldn't figure out why, you know. Uh, it took me a very long time to get over it to where I could actually put out content again. Um, I think I, well, I don't think, I know I relied a lot on Reggie for support. Um, creative support, emotional support, because I can be a bit of a nut when it comes to things like numbers and the listenership and I can uh I overanalyze things to the point where I'm no longer analyzing anything based in reality and uh I have a I sometimes take things uh personally um like when numbers are down I take it personal not realizing that in the real world, people's lives don't revolve around, you know, me talking about the X-Men or me talking about anything. Um, but, I, I, you know, just the, the irrational part of me would, uh, would worry about that kind of stuff and would take things personally and would uh, kind of get um, into my own head to the point where I, I didn't want to do this anymore. I didn't want to function as a content creator on this uh, on this great and wide internet anymore because I didn't have my support. Reggie was the support and uh, he would always find a way to to knock me back to reality but he did so very gently and he did so with care and uh, without him there I was kind of left to uh, to my own. Uh, insecurities and uh, and worries and what's more I had started doing uh, podcasts with other folks and I found myself taking like the Reggie role uh, like the the veteran role uh, who would do the editing and who would do the promoting and all the stuff that I depended on Reggie to do was now something that I was doing and it was something that I I mean podcasting comes easy to some people uh, every, you know, thing anything in, in this world can come easy to some people. Walking a tightrope comes easy to some people. Flying a jet plane comes easy to some people. Um, and podcasting, of course, comes easy to some people. I'm not one of those people. I second, third, and fourth guess just about everything I say and everything I do. And I worry a lot. So uh, without someone there to... Uh, Without Reggie there, who was, you know, 
my mentor as well as my friend, I got scared. I was too scared to uh, to function on these airwaves here. And uh, I don't want that to sound like I'm slighting any any other people that I've been working with because they were fantastic. They are fantastic, and uh, I'll talk more about them in a little bit. But uh, but yeah, we were where where were we? We're <laughs> we're at the, around the new year, and I there were things I wanted to do. There were things I wanted to talk about. There were shows I wanted to put together, and I, I just couldn't do it. There were shows that I was putting together that I bailed on. I was just lucky, so lucky that the the folks that I bailed on are still there for me. They still, they still accept me, and uh, that means a world to me. And I don't know if I've made that clear to them. And if they're listening now, I, I hope they, I hope they know that. But, uh, but uh, yeah, so I was just done. Uh, the channel sat by its lonesome, and. Uh, then rent came due. Um, we're on Podbean, and uh, we were on a yearly subscription schedule with them. And I didn't want to bother Reggie with it. Reggie was the one because we had the Patreon that went to uh, that went to Reggie, and and he would parcel it out. But he would also take care of the of the accounting. You know, he would take care of domain names, and he would take care of the the podcast feed, and. Um, when I got the email saying that, hey, all your stuff is going to vanish in four days if you don't, if you don't re-up now, you're going to be, you know, SOL. You're not going to have any of your audio. And at that point, I mean, it was thousands of hours of audio. And it's, and I, you know, it's going to sound weird perhaps, but uh, I compared it to um, being the, the spouse that doesn't handle accounting, you know. Like, you hear stories about couples that are together for... And this is me over-romanticizing things. Um, but uh, you hear stories of, like, couples who are, who are together for a number of years. And when one of them passes, the other one doesn't know where the checkbook is. And that's where I was. I got this, this email, and I wasn't going to bother Reggie with it. Because he had far more important things to concern himself with. I just had to figure out a way to make it work if I wanted to make it work. And at that point, I hadn't put out new content in a long time. And it would have been very easy for me just to let it lapse. Maybe download a few things before it, they vanished. And, uh, and just moved on with my life. But, uh, but I, f- you know, I figured it out. I had, to, I had to get in touch with a lot of people just to verify I was who I said I was. And... It was a bit of a cluster, but it got done. But uh, it was uh, it was an experience, and it was a reality check that I don't know. I I, I don't feel like I'm worthy of a whole lot in this in this game. But uh, that made it feel like I I really wasn't pulling my weight. Like those are things I should have known. You know what I mean? Um, but it was fixed, you know, and there was nothing else to worry about, or so I thought. And then uh, about a month later, um, Reggie would pass away. And that is uh, where I thought it was just, I was just done. Um, for a lot of reasons, you know. Uh, of course, there was all the support 
that I would get from him, um, all the guidance. And, I mean, these are things that I've talked about before on here, and I, I don't want to be too repetitive, um, and I don't want to bring everyone down here, uh, because I don't want to say the story has a happy ending, but it, it, it does turn. Um, yeah, so I thought I was just done, you know? Um, I didn't think... I didn't think it was right for me to have the ability to continue doing this thing that uh, that he and I had done together, you know? Um, I didn't know what was next. I didn't know where... what the next move would be, you know? Um, and what happened was I took two or three weeks off from uh, doing shows, and then I forced myself to do a show. And uh, I regret that a lot because I, I don't have very many rules when it comes to doing what I do right now. What I'm doing right now is, it's not important. It's not, uh, it's not life-changing. It's, uh, but I still have a rule for it. Um, and the, the rule is that you have to be passionate about what you're doing. I've listened to a lot of shows where the hosts hosts are clearly not interested in what they're talking about. They're dispassionate about their subject. And I feel like that's it's almost like an insult to the listenership because they're spending their time, they're choosing to spend their time with you. And uh, if you're not going to be passionate about what you do, then, I mean, you're not helping anybody. And I was that guy. For that week where I forced myself to do this show I, I My mind was anywhere but on the show But I pushed through anyway And uh, Felt really dirty afterwards Felt like I'd broken a rule I felt like I betrayed my partner I felt Really, really not good um, And uh, And it was a real shock to the system It was a reality check for me where I, I figured it was just, you know, it's time to hang it up. It's time to hang up this microphone because I'm not passionate about this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and then you start thinking, you, you start to try to justify the decision that you're afraid to make. Because I was petrified to make this decision because had I stopped, then what was the, what was the other five years for? You know, building to nothing. So you try to justify it, and then you—that's—that's that's when I start getting my head lost in the numbers, and it's like, well, less people are listening, so eh, you know, nobody wants this anyway. So why am I still bothering? And that—that's—that's uh, that's some heavy justification when you're dealing with something that once brought you great joy, and then suddenly isn't, and it's. Just so mind-boggling that uh, you know you think about how it's every—it's never going to be the same again, right? And and for again for folks who want to hear me talk about X-Men Fantastic Four number four, it's coming. I apologize. <laughs> this is just a uh, this is just me talking for a minute. Um, I figured it was probably in my best interest and out of respect to my partner to leave. To stop, you know, not to do this anymore. Um, and 
not many people know, even those closest to me, don't know how close it came for me just <laughs> deleting everything. Um, when Reggie passed, uh, the blog changed quite a bit. Up to that point, it had been... It had only been reviews of uh, mostly DC comics uh, for the first, you know, four years or so. It was all DC stuff then. Started trickling some other stuff in as I got burned out on that stuff. But uh, when Reggie passed, I couldn't write about that anymore. I couldn't write about comics anymore because that was something I associated with, uh, with the work he and I did together. So my blog kind of uh, deteriorated. I don't want to say deteriorated because it didn't. Um, the stuff that I wrote was uh, some of the most heartfelt stuff I've probably ever wrote for public consumption. But uh, it shifted. I wrote about my times with Reggie, and uh, that's. I, I didn't. I wasn't worried about an audience. You know, I wasn't worried if this was not what people wanted to see. And uh, it was very cathartic, but it was different, you know? It was very different from what came before. And it was just another sign that things were not going to be the same anymore. And uh, I would eventually have a decision to make. And uh, it was a decision I didn't want to make, because the way I looked at it, there was no good... There was no good option. Either... Either I keep going and feel like I'm betraying someone I care about a lot, or I stop doing something that once brought me great joy and, and could very well bring me joy again. So, and I, I I get that this is like such small potatoes compared to real life things, but uh, I don't know, it's just something that... Uh, I think this hobby has just become so intrinsically linked to so many different aspects of my life. Um, everything outside of my professional life and my academic life is, and family life is mixed up in this hobby. You know, all of my friends I have through this hobby. My, pa you know, my, my hobby passion in life of comic books is tied... I don't think there's a way to untie it from this hobby, you know? So shutting the door on it would be shutting the door on so much more. Does that make sense? I hope it does. And I hope I don't come across like a total whinge and fool here, but uh, I'm just trying to... Uh, I, I, there is a point here I'm trying to get to, and, and I'll eventually get to it. <laughs> but... Uh, um. I was lucky enough to have some very, very supportive friends uh, in this time here, uh, no matter how hard I pushed them away, because I did. I pushed a lot of people away during these uh, past six months where, I don't know, it's just been, it's been a difficult time. And they've all stuck by me, and they've all pushed me, and they've all given me space when they knew I needed it, and... Piled on when they knew I needed that, you know, and uh, I don't want to name names because uh, anytime I do, I'm afraid I'm going to leave someone out. And as someone who's usually left out of those lists, I know how much that can hurt. So I won't name names, but you probably all know who you are. Um, that brings me to um, to this program here, X Lapsed. 
I wanted I wanted to be able to do something on my own again. And uh, previous shows that I had done, the Chris is on Infinite Earth show, the 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 Remarvel show, the shows that I've done by myself have been some of the most challenging shows, challenging things that I've done um, for this hobby. It's uh, it's difficult. Uh, if if anyone out there, podcaster or not, um, hasn't tried to record themselves by themselves, it's uh, it could be scary. Uh, the first episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths took me a month and a half to to record, and it was twenty minutes long. It sat in pieces on my hard drive for a month and a half, <laughs> and it was twenty minutes. Right now, I've taken one breath, and I'm. 22 minutes into this episode, you know, it's, it's, it it gets easier, uh, but it's always a challenge. Um, maybe you just don't worry quite as much, uh, as you get more and more hours under your belt, but I wanted something to talk about, but I didn't want it to be what was before. Things like Chris's on Infinite Earths are very much like what you're listening to right now. It's me talking. And it's not always about comics, though it eventually will talk about a comic, right? But for the greater portion of it, it's me telling a personal story or me working through something. <laughs> it's a very, uh, it's the emotional shiatsu massage, you know? And it's, I know when I walk away from the desk today, I'm going to feel like I ran a marathon, you know? Um, because... Spilling like this is, uh, it's difficult. It's not, uh, it's difficult. <laughs> that's that's what I'll, how I'll put it. Especially when I'm talking about a subject that is more than me. And uh, Reggie is more than me. And uh, I feel like I do, I'm doing it a disservice, even talking about it. But, uh. Getting to X-Lapsed eventually here, um, I wanted something that was a little bit easier for me to do. I wanted to be able to, you know, plop myself in a chair, talk into a microphone for a half hour, a day, and, uh, and make something. And make something that I could be passionate about, make something that I could be excited about, make something that might touch some other people and might invite people to follow along. And uh, with X-Lapsed, it was a roll of the dice because, first of all, um, I don't think I'm very good at what I do. Uh, That's just me. That's maybe the guilty Catholic in me. It might be the the realist in me. I don't know. The pragmatist. I don't know. Uh, Second... Uh, everything I heard about this line of books, the Hox Pox Docs line, I didn't think I was smart enough to talk about it. I've mentioned it before. I have several degrees in psychology <laughs> and still wasn't sure I was smart enough to follow Hox Pox. And I'm still not completely <laughs> convinced that I am. But uh, I was concerned. Um, X-Men fans, of which I do consider myself, of course, it's a very passionate bunch, as I can attest. And so taking such a radical take 
on on these characters and trying to analyze it and try to give my opinions and my two cents. It was intimidating. And uh, so there's the fact that I don't think I'm very good, the fact that I don't think I'm very smart, and there's also the fact that I just didn't think anyone would care. And uh, that is something that... That's something that I always let Reggie worry about. But uh, with this project in particular, since this is just me and this was starting from ground zero and it was something different, I worried about whether or not anyway, who, you know, who's going to care. And the fact that I wasn't planning on doing this every single day, it just sort of happened that way. I thought this was going to be maybe once, twice a week. And then... The tumblers fell into place, you know? I found that I was passionate about this, and I was loving this project. And uh, there were people who also seemed to enjoy it. Uh, I, I couldn't I couldn't venture a guess as to why, but uh, there, there are folks out there. And again, I don't want to name names because I, I'm always afraid of leaving someone out. And your humble host is a guy who's usually left out of those lists, and I know how much that sucks. So I won't name names, but a lot of you know who you are. Um, and it really, when I say at the end of the episodes that it means the world to me, I mean that. I really do mean that. Um, as sarcastic or as silly as I make that sound, I mean every word of it. I mean it every single time I say it. Because it does. Because without you guys... Um, I wouldn't say that this show is as a wild success, but in a way, for me personally, it is. And that's why coming to a 50th episode the way we are means so damn much to me. Because it's validation, not that, you know, not that everybody in the world cares about this show, not that one or two people in the world care about this show, but the fact that I was able to do it. It's not something to be proud of. Right? I mean, it's me talking into a microphone. So it's not something that I'm, like, wildly proud of, but I'm just... I'm proud of myself for sticking to it. Because... Rewinding back to various points in this year, I never, ever would have guessed that I'd be working on something that makes me happy and that makes other people happy and something that... If I can keep my crap together, there's no end in sight. It's direction, it's motivation, it's a project. And uh, I thought that this part was going to be done for me. And uh, so far, so good, right? Uh, here we are with episode 50. Half a hundred. I mean, that's, that's a lot of episodes or a lot of entries of anything. And, uh, and I'm just so happy. That I was able to do it I'm so happy I'm able to share it with you all And that you are all willing to share So much of your time Listening to an idiot Talk to talk about uh, His hot takes for a, a line of comic books Right? So, um I think I think that's That's where I'll leave it For our uh, little pre-ramble here Our really long pre-ramble I want to apologize for going on as long as I did Um if you're still with me, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for indulging me. And uh, I think, uh, you know what? We're going 
we're going to take another thing out of the uh, Chris's on Infinite Earths bag of tricks here, and uh, we're going to throw it over to the horns. Uh, we're going to go to the horns, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the last issue of X-Men plus Fantastic Four. All righty, let's finally finish this one up here. This is X-Men plus Fantastic Four number four, September 2020 cover date. Stories called Welcome to the New World, written by Chip Zosky, pencils by Terry Dodson, inks Rachel Dodson and Ransom Getty, colors Laura Martin, letters VCs Joe Caramagna, edits Byro Smith, Brevoort Sobolski, cover price $3.99, went on sale July 22nd of 2020. Now, we open in Doom's lab, right after he's found out that Wolverine had just skewered a Latverian. And we find out here that it was actually a Latverian mutant, which might have been made clear last issue and I somehow missed it, or may just be brand new information. Now, Doom, he insists that Franklin stay still in that god power beam or whatever it is. Uh, Beast decides to lunge out the window, like you do. And we see outside that the X-Men and the Fantastic Four have, uh, well, of course, put their differences aside to battle back the Doom Sentinels. Beast opines that Doctor Doom has just declared war on mutants. Then, two pages of credits and a whole lot of catch-up information included here, because you gotta remember, it's been like four months since the prior issue. Uh, Something about the world ending and all that. Uh, Then, roll call. We've got our feared and hateds. That's Call Me Kate, Charles Xavier... Wolverine, Magneto, Cyclops, Beast, Emma Frost, Nightcrawler, and Rogue. Then we have our four fearless friends, of which, of course, there were six. Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Woman, Human Torch, Thing, Franklin, and Val. And seeing the Fantastic Four's names here has me uh, wanting to ask, how to, did, how many folks include the thes when they refer to them, right? Did you say Invisible Woman or THE Invisible Woman? THE Human Torch, THE Thing. I, I'm probably like 80-20, no the, no the. Uh, same comes with like characters like The Flash. I, it's it's just Flash. And uh, I don't even get me started on actual comic book titles, you know, like The Uncanny X-Men and The Amazing Spider-Man. I, I've used some, uh, I've used some cataloging programs, right? I think a lot of us comics enthusiasts have used those online or downloadable apps or whatever to start logging your uh, your collections and some of them like if you put if you put flash in there and then you look under the f's it's not there it's in the t's for the flash it's like oh come on even you just do flash comma the help me out here all right back to the story we're back inside here and sue and kitty attempt to break through doom's force field in order to nab franklin who looks like he's starting to freak out a bit I don't know when Sue got here, but she's here. Uh, Just when it looks like Kitty's about to phase through the force field, Doom reminds her that he knows her powers better than she does. He comments that, you know, she's got the ability to make herself lighter than air, and we've seen her do that before. So, stands to reason, conversely, there's also the power to make her heavier than stone. And that's exactly what Doom does, and so she crashes through the floor, slamming down to the ground below. Franklin begs Doom to leave everyone alone. Sue continues to pound on the bubble, which, I mean, must be a heck of a thing considering she is the most powerful character in the Marvel Universe and all. She's so powerful, in fact, that Emma Frost is about to beg her for an assist. Emma fills Sue in on Doom sticking mutants into the automated Doom armor. 
She doesn't mention that Wolverine, you know, impaled one, but uh, I guess that detail can wait. I thought Sue was with Emma. Wasn't she in town with them, making them invisible? I, I don't know. Reed turns to Sue and tells her that she's got to save everyone because she's the most power... Uh, never mind. Sue gets into the fracas. She helps to remove bits and pieces of the automated Doom armor from the missing Latvarian mutants. Nightcrawler bamps around a lot to give her a hand and uh, talk about how great it is that they're all working together now. In the down below, Kitty attempts to fight Doom's control over her powers and vows that she won't allow him to control Franklin as well. Speaking of Franklin, and this is pretty weird, he's like all contorted and in pain, right? He's being bathed in this, this light from Doom here, right? And Reed, his father, he's just standing by, calmly saying, hey, you know, you can quit whenever you like. Did, did he not see what just happened to Kitty when she tried to helping him? Eh. Xavier, he basically repeats the same thing he said last issue about Doom having an ulterior motive, and they're both perfectly calm here. They're just standing here blank-faced and useless. It's ridiculous. Finally, Kitty's able to, you know, get her druthers up, and she busts into the, into the force field, and she fills Franklin in on everything that's going on outside. Which, shouldn't he sort of kind of already know that there's like a friggin' war happening outside the window? Yeah. Anywho, it's at this point that Franklin decides to stop the procedure, and what's more, he uses his reality-warping abilities to put a stop to all the fighting. The dust settles, and the heroes win. Just like that. Doom appears before the heroes to talk some spoo about Franklin being as dumb and useless as his father. Magneto pipes in and says that Doom's gonna pay for what he's done to the mutants. Professor X agrees with Magneto, but reveals that it won't be today that Doom pays. Because this ain't really Doom, it's just a hologram. Now this hologram starts reading the X-Men of the Riot Act. You know, they wrote, they broke his rules, murdered one of his people, and they obliterated his defense force, all in the name of superiority. Doom's pretty hung up on that, and, uh, well, as, as in-your-face as it's been during this event, I, I suppose it stands to reason. Doom reminds the heroes that they, exclamation point, are, exclamation point, in, exclamation point, Latveria, exclamation point. Can we stop with this? Can, can we, I mean, can we, can we stop doing that? This is one of the more annoying current year comics writer beats. It's, it's like a meme. It's like, it's as annoying as people who put the clapping emoji in between every word because they think it helps them make a point when all it really does is make them look like self-important jerks. Though, in fairness, Doom is a self-important jerk, so well played. Now, Doom threatens to go public with everything that's happened here. As in, he's going to lay everything before the international community. Xavier calls his bluff and actually raises the stakes. He figures Doom ain't gonna do diddly squat. Oh, and also, the X-Men will be taking the Latvarian mutants back to Krakoa with them. Doom doesn't put up a fight and even suggests that perhaps the Latvarian mutants might teach the other Krakoans some manners. And with that, Doom's Audi. So, we got us a still broken Franklin. The Fantastic Four, they, they huddle up, hug him, they chat him up. And it's here that the art starts getting a... more than a little bit sketchy. <laughs> it's not the best Dodson work for the, uh, for the third third of this issue. Now, Franklin, he knows he's still broken. Everything feels wrong. He We're going to get a lot of apologies here. So he apologizes to his family for running off the way he did. But he says he only did so because nobody would listen to him. What's more, nobody would ever talk about the fact that he's a mutant. It's as though his family were embarrassed by that fact. 
Sue assures him that she couldn't be more proud of him. She then turns to Xavier and apologizes for the way they reacted to this whole deal. She suggests that Xavier had his heart in the right place, he's only trying to free and unify his people, yada yada yada, all that jazz. Next, it's Charles' turn to apologize, and so he does. He says he shouldn't have approached the Richards in the manner that he did. And so, it's time for Franklin to make a decision. And check it out, he will return to Krakoa with the X-Men. Huh. Well, that was unexpected. I wonder if that'll be picked up in the other X-Books or just be something that happened here and never be mentioned again. Um, I suppose we'll eventually find out. Info page. Read Richard's journal, 6620141. I wouldn't want to get them mixed up. This is all about the Krakowin Gates. And uh, Reed talks about the Krakowin Gates <laughs> and talks about how great they'd be for the environment if humans were allowed to use them too. Couldn't Reed uh, invent something like that? I mean, that doesn't seem like it's outside of his wheelhouse, does it? All right. We jump ahead to three weeks later. Franklin is training on Krakoa and preparing to head home for dinner because, uh, you know, those gateways sure make for a speedy commute. Professor X and Magneto asked to join him on the trip since they have some business to attend to in New York as well. It's worth noting, we learn here that Franklin's powers are decaying far slower on Krakoa. We take a scene shift and we're in Valeria's room and she's chatting with a hologram doom. Now they talk about evolution and mutants. It feels kind of like we're treading into the uh, to the realm that we were uh, talking about during Hoxpox, you know, with the post-humans and whatnot. Val gets all glib and cute with Doom and, and tells Doom that uh, he's got to just accept the future. You know, she says you've got to move on to, uh, to accepting what's going to happen in the future. And then she excuses herself because she's hungry and it's dinner time. Downstairs, Franklin, Charles, and Magneto arrive. The latter pair asks to see Reed, and uh, they're pointed to the lab, because where else is he going to be? So, we follow them to the lab, where Charles tells Reed he'd like to talk about the mutant gene device that he had on Franklin at the start of the story. If you remember, Franklin ran through a Krakoan gateway and literally ran right through it as though it was air, because he was wearing this device, or because there was a device, I guess, that Reed planted on him that would hide the fact that he was a mutant. Now, Reed... He's all mea culpa, mea culpa. He apologizes. He knows he was wrong to do that. But Charles cuts him off. You see, he doesn't care so much about the mutant cloaking aspects of the device. Well, he does care about that, but not quite as much as this other thing. And that other thing is the fact that this device can also cut the mutant gene off entirely. So that's where he's a little bit hung up. So much so that he actually removes his Cerebro helmet to look Reed in the eyes. Reed denies it. But Xavier's already in his head and he knows that he's lying. He tells Reed that he crossed the line and so something's going to have to be done. And so Xavier mucks around in Reed's head removing the ability for him to remake this device. Stating no matter how hard Reed thinks about it, he'll never ever be able to reproduce it. Xavier tells him back in the long ago, citing their time together in that wretched Illuminati collective, ugh, he would have wiped Reed's mind of this encounter completely. Now, however, he wants Reed to know what he's taken from him. He wants Reed to live with the choices he's made. Magneto destroys the one existing device and pretty much tells Reed that he's on notice. 
He now has the attention of Krakoa, and whereas before he was able to conduct business quote-unquote unchecked, well, that's no longer the case. They welcome Reed to the new world, and they leave. The last three pages of this series are info pages, showing the gradual decay of Reed Richards' journal entry 661007, which is all about this device, which is called the Codex. And it's a pretty cool and creative way of depicting this, which makes me... I'm actually able to forgive the fact that we're spending so many pages on it. Um, Yeah, the first page, it looks like a perfectly normal journal entry that we've seen a few times during this series. The second page, there's little bits and pieces missing. And then the third page, it's just a blank entry. So that was really cool. And uh, that is where we leave it. Now, our next episode, we are going to be taking a look at giant size X-Men, Emma Emma Frost and Jean Grey, or Jean Grey and Emma Frost, whichever direction those come in. And that'll be uh, issue number one of that one shot. So, um, hmm. Kind of a mixed bag here. Uh, Not sure how much of that might be due to the pandemic, but... uh, I feel like things kind of fell apart here uh, a little bit. Um, again, I don't know. I don't know how much of this was in motion before the world fell apart. I, you know, and and in, of course, in the grand scheme of things, X Men plus Fantastic Four number four is probably not worth a hill of beans in you know the face of a, a worldwide shutdown. But well, we're not here to talk about a worldwide shutdown. We're here to talk about a comic book. So that's what we're gonna do. Gotta say that the story felt far more meticulous throughout the first three chapters, you know? Everything felt like it had a purpose, everything was leading to something, everything was, uh... It was meticulous. Everything made sense. I might not have liked everything that was going on, but I couldn't say that it didn't make sense given the context of the story. Here? Uh, this was like a... The, the proverbial bag of hammers falling down the stairs in some ways here. It's just things being tossed at the wall to see what they'd stick. Um, uh, attention to detail was a little bit slim here. Uh, we've got the Marauders. Where were they? Wolverine killed a mutant. Huh? <laughs> He's, we don't get any mention of Wolverine at all. Uh, I don't know if we can assume that this dead Ladvarian mutant can be brought back via the Five. I don't know if Professor X has him in his Cerebro, you know, profile. We don't get those questions asked or answered here. Uh, Rogue is in the roll call. We don't see her, as far as I can tell. Uh, we start off with Sue in Doom's lab when she was just in town. It almost, and I have absolutely no way to back this statement up, it almost felt like panic writing. It's like they realized, oh crap, we got to finish this story now. And again, that could be due to the pandemic. Um, Or I could just be thinking way, way, way too hard, because I had very high expectations for this. And uh, while I did mostly enjoy it, it kind of fell apart. Uh, The end of this conflict, right? Highly underwhelming and pretty anticlimactic here. Uh, Franklin just decides he's done, he uses his power, and everything's okay again. And, and the Fantastic Four and the X-Men, they even, they're all back to being pals, and they, they're literally stumbling over one another to apologize. <sighs> kind of a letdown. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I wanted them to fight to the death or anything. 
But uh, the way this wrapped up kind of took the wind out of my sails a bit. Um, I could almost compare it to uh, the ending of Operation Zero Tolerance, for folks who might remember that. I mean, we built this story up for what felt like the better part of a year with Bastion, you know, with... uh, with the anti-mutant uh, registration stuff or the anti-mutant uh, governmental whatever the hell it was. And then it wraps up with Bastion just, like, giving up and uh, letting himself be arrested. <laughs> it's, like, all that build for not a whole lot, for a very underwhelming, very pedestrian sort of thing here. And that's kind of, maybe not to the same extent, but that's kind of how I'm feeling here with this. Uh, we do get Franklin choosing Krakoa, which was uh, highly unexpected. Um, I mean, given the uh, given the you know what this show is all about, I obviously have not read any further, so I don't know if this actually plays out in the Dawn of X books. But I'd kind of be surprised if it did. Um, I I just don't see Brevort handing Franklin over to the X office. I I think that there's a that he's, you know, too much of a Fantastic Four character where he's not going to hand this uh, this character over to another group of uh, editors. Though I have been wrong before. I hope I am, but I don't think I am. Now, the best part of this issue was probably the epilogue. Actually, it was definitely the epilogue here because, I mean, everything else was kind of very convenient. And then we got Doom pontificating like only Doom can and then caving... <laughs> Under under Xavier calling his bluff eh, You know uh, The attempts to to like put political intrigue into these stories That's never really going to land with me Because I don't know It's like uh, It's it's hard to it, It's kind of like they're trying to eat their cake and have it too It's like we have this fantastical world here But they're still You know They still answer to the government It's like eh, Could we you know <laughs> I don't know, it just doesn't, just doesn't land right for me. Like, seeing Doom say, I'm going to tell on you, doesn't feel doomy to me. Doom saying, I'm going to you know get my pound of flesh, that's one thing, but I'm going to go tell on you. Eh. Especially when all it takes is calling him on the bluff and he backs down. Not a good look. Now, so the best part of the issue is the epilogue here. Having Xavier and Magneto like putting Reed on notice, knowing what he'd done with that device... I like that. It's pretty interesting, and it really makes Reed look villainous. Um, this is like the one scene in this thing where the X-Men actually don't look like the bad guys, or completely like the bad guys. Xavier does wipe his mind in a way, and, you know, for all intents and purposes, robbing him the ability to remake this thing, so that's pretty villainous. But, uh, I don't know, we're getting these shades of gray characters here, and it's uh, it doesn't make anybody look good, unfortunately. I think it was uh, either Damien or Jason or maybe both of them who had written in and mentioned that Reed is being written not unlike a villain. And uh, yeah, this is a sure sign of that. And also, it's worth noting, it kind of speaks to Reed's arrogance, doesn't it? You know, like, say the leader of the group that you're screwing with has the ability to read your mind, and then you still do the thing. (laughs) I mean, that's either... Ridiculous levels of trust in that Charles Xavier won't, you know, betray your trust and and just invade your mind, or that's just a set of stones on Mister Fantastic there, right? Very very weird. Um, 
But I mean, that's pretty much all I got to say about it. Uh, as an issue, it's kind of anticlimactic, discounting that epilogue. Uh, the rushed art here didn't help matters much either. Um, there were a lot of panels here that looked like they were like straight up inked from sketches. Like, very, very blocky, very, very, uh, uh, just lacking detail, just not good, um, for, uh, for what we know that the Dodsons can do, just not good. Now, as an issue, anticlimactic, but as an event miniseries, I mean, for the most part, I enjoyed it. Um, it introduced a lot of interesting ideas, plenty of food for thought, a lot of things I hadn't considered yet. You know, we talked about uh, Xavier's timetable being a bit uh, rigid and not knowing why. I, I think that was very, very interesting and something worth digging into. Um, it's uh, and we didn't we didn't really get any answers on that. I don't know that we will. I suspect we won't. But it made me think of things that I hadn't yet thought of, which is always good. Um, I'd say for seven seven eighths of this story, it was absolutely beautiful to look at. Uh, there were certainly things I didn't care for, uh, many of which I've already said a bunch of times over the course of these past four episodes. Uh, for the most part, uh, the biggest complaint I have is that I just didn't like how the X-Men were depicted here. You know, and that's... I'm probably going to say that any time they're facing off against a, another group of heroes, because the X-Men have got to be jobbed out, no matter what. And, uh, you know, I might have said that already a time or eight in recent days, you know, it's... I don't like how the X-Men are, are portrayed when compared to other heroes, so that's just something. That's that's my cross to bear, and that'll continue to be. Now, should you read this if you haven't already? I'd say so. Yes, yes. And what's more, if Marvel wants to give me a, a Zarsky Dodson ongoing Fantastic Four, please, yes, I'd gladly fork over my four to five bucks every month to check it out, so... I'd say overall, this was a net positive. Uh, there were certainly things I didn't like about it, but uh, I think the good definitely outweighed anything less good, right? Don't want to say bad, but uh, less good. So definitely worth checking out if you uh, are of the mind to do so. I would, uh, I would definitely recommend it. But uh, before we jam out of here today for our big 50th episode here, let's dip into the mailbag here. We got one piece of mail, and then we have some blurbs that I would like to uh, share with you all. Now, our email comes from Al Sedano, and he is finally moved into the Dawn of X era. He read X-Men Volume 5, Number 1. He says, Hey, Chris. Well, I needed a few days to digest all of that hox and pox, but now I'm ready to get into the actual individual titles. I'm curious to see how I'll feel about them as they go on. So first of all, we have X-Men Number 1. Let's start with the legacy numbering. Oh, do we have to? Uh, <laughs> He continues, I'm sort of with you. I'm okay with leg legacy numbering normally. Considering how often they like to restart their titles, it does make it easy to keep track of a series. However, if they wanted this to be the legacy of Uncanny X-Men, they should have titled it that. It would have made more sense if this was given the legacy numbering of X-Men, Volume 2, the one started by Claremont and Lee, which I think you're familiar with. Yeah, I, we've talked about the legacy numbering and my very weird hang-ups about that sort of thing. Um... And we've also heard from uh, Hickman himself about how he didn't want a legacy number on there at all. But uh, I guess that was just, you know, in the milieu of Marvel at the time where they wanted to do that sort of thing. They haven't done it since for, for X-Men. So there's only one issue with a legacy number on it. Maybe in three or four years we'll get an Uncanny X-Men number 700. 
I mean, stranger things have happened But, uh, I don't know By then, I mean, this could be rebooted three or four times before that So, who knows Um, Al continues I hope the roster pages are going to be a normal thing in the different series And not just for the number ones By the way, I really hate the name Prestige for Rachel It really doesn't fit her or her powers And don't you worry, those roster pages ain't going nowhere (laughs) They are going to eat up a page of every single comic we're going to read here And uh, usually be accompanied by two pages of credits Except for that one wonderful issue of Marauders that only had the one as for prestige, Rachel as prestige, yeah, I don't like that either. Um, I don't know why they've made Jean Marvel Girl again, because I thought Marvel Girl was a great name for Rachel, as a you know sort of a legacy character in a way. Um, prestige, yeah, don't like it. I don't know when they did that name change. Um, that might have been during the all female X Men run. I want to say that it was probably there because I paid so little attention to that, and uh, <laughs> that might be where it happened. Uh, Al continues, getting into the story itself. So, Orcus is back. Well, I think they're going to be around for a while, but I don't think Orcus is going to be the real problem. It's the post-humans. That's why we get a, we didn't get a full ending to that in Hoxpox. It makes sense. Human versus mutants is past versus future. Now mutants are the past, and the future is coming after them. And that's you're 100% right. I, I believe that... Uh, I think one, once all the pieces fall into place, it'll be... We're going to be seeing the transhuman... Uh, the, well, the post-humans uh, situation start to bubble to the surface here. We do see them again, I think, just once since X-Men number one. And it was that... Uh, that Children of the Vault issue where X-23, uh, Darwin, and uh, Sink went into the vault. I'm trying to think if we've heard or seen them since then. Other than that, yeah, I guess we're doing, a, we're doing a long burn on this one. So I do see things coming to a head with them. I think the way Hickman's writing this, that might be like the coda to his run, you know, where you can actually read everything as one one whole story where they're introduced in the beginning of the beginning and then are dealt with at the end of the end. So I I don't think we should be holding our breath for it, but I do definitely see it coming. Uh, Al continues, I did enjoy the Summers family dinner, but was Hepzibah hitting on Rachel? I thought she was with Corsair. I don't know. It felt weird, right? She was talking about like the spikes on her outfit and asking if like her underwear was spiked or something. It was very strange. Um, Al continues, also that floor plan. Now I see what people were talking about when this came out. They have open connections between Scott and Jean's rooms and between Jean and Logan's, but not between any of the other rooms. Maybe make mutant babies means all-out mutant polymory. <laughs> uh, as for the empty rooms, I'm guessing the one next to Alex is for Lorna, and the other one, Adam X, maybe? Overall, I enjoyed this issue. I wish it was Adam X. I... I <laughs> I don't want to say I un- unironically like him, but I, I tell you, I bought in to him being that third Summers brother, uh, big time, because uh, I'm pretty sure it was supposed to be him <laughs> originally, so uh, we were supposed to think that, but uh, yeah, I definitely bought in on that uh, big time back in 93-ish, I think it was, 93, 94, but uh, yeah, the uh, the schematic is really cool here for the, uh, the Summer House, I like... Uh, Actually, I don't really like the love triangle, the Scott, Gene, Logan love triangle. That's a bit of X-Men lore that I've never really glommed onto. 
But, I mean, you play the ball where it lie, right? So it is what it is, and, uh, I mean, I'll allow it because I don't really have much of a choice. And the fact that it is true to what's come before, I'm, I'm totally cool with it. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Al. I'm so happy that you're up to uh, the, the individual titles here, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you think about the rest of the line. I mean, I think we might have some interesting conversations ahead of us here. You've got, you've got a big issue of X-Force coming up. You've got a great issue of Marauders. You've got whatever's going on in Excalibur. You've got Fallen Angels. <laughs> Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts as you uh, as you progress through that uh, that anthology uh, book there. Now, before we finish completely here, I did uh, I did something kind of desperate. Maybe um, I sent out a uh, tweet earlier today saying that I was going to be recording the 50th episode and invited people to share some thoughts. And I wasn't expecting anything, and uh, but I did get I did get a handful and. Uh, of course, if uh, if you somehow missed the tweet, I don't know how far my voice carries. I don't think it carries all that far these days. It used to carry a little bit further. I don't know what happened if I if I made Twitter mad or if I just made everybody else mad. But uh, I'm I'm seen far less, or at least engaged with far less than I have been in quite a while. So if you missed the tweet and you would like to share some thoughts, please feel free to uh, to write in and uh, and share your thoughts about this show. It means a lot to me to hear. That people are uh, a listening and uh, b have something to say about it, good, bad, or indifferent. Now we're gonna start with Chris Bailey, my partner over on uh, Mortory Mondays and upcoming Quester Days, and uh, a certain other podcast that I it has some numbers in the title, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. But uh, he says, "I love the shows. It's enriched my new X Men experience. I'm also the other guy who loves the Major X Labs show. Hey, thank you." Some of these books I would never buy, so keeping up on Excalibur and Fallen Angels with the podcast is perfect. Bottom line, keep them coming. So thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you for the words about a Major X Lapsed, which, as I've said before, almost uh, almost pulled me to a full stop. <laughs> that was a toughie. But, uh, no, I'm glad that, uh, that you're following along, Chris. It means a lot to me. And uh, the, uh, the books that... Uh, that's why I wanted to do all the books, right? Because, I mean, not everybody's going to buy all the books. But if you're following along um, and you don't feel like spending four or five bucks on an issue of Fallen Angels, and I wouldn't blame you in the slightest if you wouldn't, um, you know, you listen to the show and you'll f- be filled in on everything that happened in it, uh, to the best of my abilities anyway. And you'll be able to keep up. And uh, I think that's that's why I do all or nothing, right? So thank you so, so much. Uh, next, we have uh, some nice words from Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom on Twitter. He says, "Congrats on the fiftieth episode. I've listened to every episode. Also, Moratory Mondays, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and the Cosmic Treadmill. I am the worst at engagement and feedback, though. I really like the shows. The synopses are entertaining, and I value your opinions and analysis of whatever book is being discussed." So for what it's worth, I'm a guaranteed download slash listener for each show, even if I have to wait a few days. I don't have any constructive criticism other than to say, keep doing what you do. Oh, and I'd personally like it if the horns were added to X-Lapsed pre- and post-synopsis. I think you'll be happy with today's episode. (laughs) We do have the horns today. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, not only listening to this show, but uh, everything. Uh, That... 
that's uh, one of those things I don't know how to put into words how I feel about it because it really means so much to me. Um, I try to make the shows different, you know. Um, I don't want every show to be like X Lapsed, you know. Um, there are other X Lapsed shows, like Major X Lapsed and other things, but I don't want everything to be just like this. So that's why, you know, Chris's on Infinite Earths has its format, Mortory Mondays has its format. Cosmic Treadmill had a wonderful format um, that I miss every single day. I uh, I loved that format uh, so much, and I would love to do more in that vein, but it just wouldn't be right. So uh, that just won't be happening. But uh, now that means a lot. I mean, that's many many hours with me in your ear, and I <laughs> anybody who would uh, who would do that uh, that that means the world to me. Thank you so much, Andrew. Um, we have a piece from Jody Yurden. He says, I'm really digging everything, Chris, and having a fun time reading stuff I might not necessarily have read otherwise. I'd also like to add that I take it all back about the great things I said about the farm portion of New Mutants, as issue six was a bit on the brutal side. Keep up the fine work. Well, it's funny. The, the, the sixth issue of New Mutants is like the only one I liked. That's <laughs> the only one I dug for the farm. But, uh, but thank you. Thank you so much. Um... I, I'm glad that um, if you're reading stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily read, that's that says a lot. Um, that that means a lot. That uh, you're adding things to your read pile to uh, to follow along. That uh, yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jody. Uh, that really really means a lot. Finally, we'll wrap up with a piece from uh, Evan Bevins. He says, I'm enjoying very much hearing another lapsed X-Fan's thoughts on this bold new direction. I only wish I wasn't so far behind. I wonder if any of those other shoes you've mentioned have dropped yet, as I've been uneven in what I've been able to follow. The series and storylines I'm most looking forward to catching up on at some point are the Fantastic Four crossover, because Zarsky has put out great stuff in recent years, and X-Factor, which has one of the best concepts of the bunch. Well, if you're hearing this, then you've heard... You've heard the Fantastic Four one, so there you go. Uh, X-Factor, I don't know when that actually comes up in the rotation, but I'm also looking forward to it. X-Factor, just as the title, has always been a soft spot for me. Um, From, you know, the original five to the Peter David to to the X-Factor investigations, all new X-Factor wasn't all that great, but... uh, but everything else has been a soft spot for me, so I'm looking forward to seeing what they're doing with the concept here. I think I mentioned on a previous episode that I thought it was something to do with, like, a police force on Krakoa, but I could very well be wrong. I don't know exactly what the concept is. Um, yeah, and as for those shoes dropping, uh, because I, I talked a lot about footwear uh, early on in this run, um, some of them have, right? Maybe. I don't... <laughs> got to re-listen to those episodes because i don't remember but uh thank you so much for your thoughts evan that really means a lot to me um i had planned to uh wrap this episode up with an announcement but um i don't feel right about it just yet um doing 50 episodes i thought was sort of a statement you know um it set a I don't know, a precedent maybe that uh, that I could be counted on to put out content. You know, I'd been... 
Yes, so many of us podcasters, we will fall on the life got in the way sort of thing. And uh, it never fails. Life does often get in the way. But I thought having 50 episodes would be a good time to announce that maybe I was going to consider reopening the Patreon. Um, But uh, I decided it didn't feel right to do that. Uh, I have been... Doing a double and triple duty on my recording here over the past uh, three or four weeks. I have a, a whole uh, exclusive line of shows that I was uh, going to launch the Patreon with. And this was something I was going to call, or am calling, because it still exists in the world, it's just not published. Uh, Age of X-Lapsed, where I go through the Age of X-Men uh, event Got a bunch of those episodes already in the can, just waiting for me to uh, launch the deal. So, I don't know. I, I always I felt weird about doing that the first time, and I still kind of feel weird about doing that. I don't know that anything I do is worth anybody paying any actual money for. But, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll wake up on a different side of the bed tomorrow and decide it's a good idea. But, it's, uh, you know, it is there. So maybe one of these days it'll happen. I'll, I'll definitely keep everybody in the loop as far as uh, what I decide to do with those episodes, whether they just start showing up on the regular feed or if they wind up uh, somewhere exclusive as a little uh, as a little bonus for folks who uh, want to support the show and the channel and the blog and me in general. <laughs> but uh, I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. We broke an hour today, which we haven't done in quite a while. Um, I want to thank everyone for sticking around through that extended open, the pre-ramble of, uh, of this uh, program. And uh, raspily voiced, I want to thank everyone for everything over the course of these past 50 episodes, the support, the love, the letters, all that stuff. I, it really means a lot to me. So I think that's where we'll leave it today. And uh, one more giant thank you. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 134 of X-Lapse, where uh, we're still a little bit off the beaten path after our uh, extended uh, sword fight. <laughs> we are not quite back to business as usual just yet. We're going to take care of a little bit of business that happened while uh, our heroes were out fighting with swords or searching for swords or not using the swords that they searched for. Um, we're going to talk about... Well, we're going to talk about an issue of the Fantastic Four, and it's a it's an issue that was brought to my attention right around the time it came out, to, and uh, folks were asking if we were going to discuss this, because it is, at least one scene, or one page, is uh, very relevant to um, not only Krakoa and the X-Men, but an entire miniseries that we uh, covered not too long ago on the show. So, a lot of you probably already know where this is headed, but... Uh, we're going to get into it anyway. But first, I figured, uh, since we're not going to have a heck of a lot to talk about outside of that one scene, that one page in this book, I figure I might as well talk a little bit about my life and times as a uh, fan of the Fantastic Four. And it's uh, not an especially thrilling story. <laughs> the Fantastic Four were never my favorites. Um... I don't know of anybody who could say that they were. Uh, all the folks that I grew up hanging out with, and even the folks that I hang out with now, Fantastic Four are just kind of there. You know, it reminds me, whenever I think of the Fantastic Four, I'm reminded of a discussion that Reggie and I used to have a lot uh, regarding Superman. We would talk about how anytime DC would make like a big change to Superman, People would come out of the woodwork to just talk uh, talk down about it, just uh, really get angry about it and be offended about it. Even people who haven't read a Superman comic in, you know, 20 years or ever, you know? I think of the Fantastic Four as in a similar sort of thing as that because people want the Fantastic Four to exist just so they could go ahead and continue not caring about it or not paying attention to it. But they want it there, you know? They do want it there. They want it to be the same as it ever was. But they're not going to pay attention to it. And uh, for a lot of my comic collecting career, uh, well, the early parts and the current parts, uh, I've been pretty much in that uh, in that mode, you know? I liked the fact that there was a Fantastic Four. I would like to see them showing up on... On the fringes of, a, of an event or something that I'd be following, and uh, that's about it. Now, it wouldn't be until the late 1990s where I would uh, finally try the Fantastic Four. I, I, you know, of course, owned a few issues of it that comics would just wind up finding their way into your home, no matter what they were. You'd find something. You'd, I think a lot of folks who uh, were into comics or are into comics, you, you will wind up with these odd smatterings of books that... Maybe you just thought to buy, maybe somebody bought them for you, but you never really had an eye toward collecting them. And that changed for me with the Fantastic Four around the time of Heroes Return, because uh, I had heard that Chris Claremont was coming onto the book, and this was probably right after I'd read uh, either the first or the first two volumes of The Essential X-Men, which uh, started collecting... Uh, Claremont's run. It actually starts with Giant Size, and then, you know, goes into the to the Claremont run proper. So I was really, really being turned on to the magic that was Chris Claremont at this point, and when I saw that he was mending fences with Marvel, and, uh, you know, was maybe going to come back to the X-Men eventually, I wanted to be in on the ground fo floor with his return project, and it was 
you know, the Heroes Return Fantastic Four once uh, Scott Lobdell walked away. And I was a huge fan of it. I really, really dug it. And it's weird. When, when people talk about the Fantastic Four, they're, you'll usually go to the Burn Run, or you'll go to the Wade and Ringo Run. For me, my mind immediately goes to the Claremont Run, which uh, it's an understated run. I believe it starts with, uh, like, Technet, the Excalibur, uh, you know, villains uh, attacking, and very, very Claremontian, you know, in hindsight. I didn't know it at the time, but now it's like, oh, yeah, it's definitely some uh, some Claremont tropes in there. But I will always think back to the Claremont run on the Fantastic Four as a very special run to me. Um, there was a bit in there where I think uh, Reed and Dr. Doom switched bodies, and there was a wedding between Sue and Doom, but it was actually Reed. It was really, really strange stuff, but I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and that led me to want to go back and pick up old issues of the Fantastic Four. And there's another comparison we have between the Fantastic Four and Superman is the back issues of both uh, are very, very cheap. You know, people did not care about them, at least in my neck of the woods here. I was able to find the entire John Byrne run in uh, in bargain bins, cheapo bins, you know, bucker below bins. And that's where I went after uh, after getting the Claremont stuff and getting caught up on that and then keeping up with that. I went back and I grabbed the Byrne stuff because that's what everybody said was like the seminal Fantastic Four. And I picked that up and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It wasn't uh, quite as mind-blowing as I thought it was going to be, but then again, you know, what is? When something's hyped to the moon and back, it's hard for anything, no matter how good it is, to live up to uh, whatever expectation you might give it. But uh, I did collect the entirety of the Burn Run. Um, Later on, in real time, uh, Mark Wade and Mike Waringo came on, and I loved that. That uh, That was something I called, like, candy comics. You know, it's like... It's just really, really good. It's so nice to look at. It felt like it had heart. It was a family book. I mean, I'm not saying anything you guys don't already know, but it further cemented my fandom. You know, they again, they were never my favorite, but I was enjoying it. It was something I looked forward to every month, and with the burn stuff out of the way, I decided I wanted to keep, you know, backfilling my Fantastic Four collection, and uh that's when we get into the DeFalco stuff. I would, uh, and the DeFalco stuff. If the burn stuff was in a fifty cent bin, the DeFalco stuff would be in a quarter bin or dime bin. <laughs> Those they were basically giving away the DeFalco stuff, and I didn't much care for it. But uh, it was kind of a situation where I was in for a penny and for a pound, and it's like I'm not going to have this big huge hole in my collection if I'm going to be serious about you know backfilling. I got to get everything. And uh, the DeFalco stuff, though quite a bit weaker, I mean, I I shouldn't say weaker because the burn stuff wasn't weak, but it was underwhelming. Um, One of the things that I remember being really, you know, I'm a 90s guy, so a lot of the stuff that I learned about these characters were on trading cards because, you know, we didn't have Wikipedia, we didn't have, you know, uh, Marvel Unlimited, we didn't have anything like that, so... You had trading cards and you had uh, the official Marvel handbooks, but those were a little bit outdated going into the 90s. You know, those were mid-80s relics and uh, really didn't, really weren't uh, in the gestalt of what I was, you know, following at the time. So the trading cards were a big thing for me. And I remember one of the trading cards, it was a rookie card. I believe it was Marvel Universe Series 3. There was a rookie card for the new Fantastic Four. 
And the new Fantastic Four was uh, Wolverine, Spider-Man, Hulk, and Ghost Rider. Because uh, it was, you know, the early 1990s, and that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of the uh, it's kind of emblematic of the time. And uh, the issues, I, I want to say, it was a uh, was it Walt Simonson and Art Adams on those issues? I think it was. I could be mistaken, but I think it was. Those issues were like the only issues of Fantastic Four that went up in value for the time. And uh, I remember when I had set my mind to, you know, pulling all these books out and actually collecting, you know, Fantastic Four all the way back to when I was born, those were the ones that kind of freaked me out. I'm like, oh, I'm never going to get those for cheap. Those are going to be, I'm going to be taxed on those, right? And that's usually the way it goes when you find when you find great big runs of comics in the bargain bin, they'll always be like one or two short, and those one or two will cost you like you know twenty bucks each or something like that. So, it totally negates the uh, the savings of a uh, of the you know, the dive. But luckily, I, I did come into I think it's a two or three part story. I, I found those in a dollar bin as well. The new Fantastic Fours, which uh, you know that they were a lot of fun. They were a lot of fun here. Um, definitely gimmicky, but they played up the fact that it was a gimmick, and that was pretty cool to me. Um, I would also grab the Heroes Reborn stuff. Uh, you know, I couldn't have... You know, it's it's something that Marvel does from time to time. They, they go back to legacy numbering, you know? And uh, so I'm collecting the, you know, the Lobdell Claremont into the Wade Waringo, and I think Carlos Pacheco had a run in there, too. That was volume three of Fantastic Four. And, uh, you know, you collect the entire volume, and it's like, ah, you know, I don't really need volume two. And then... Well, they announced that they're going back to Legacy Numbering, which collects all three volumes into the uh, into the Legacy Number, and it's like, well, crap! <laughs> now I gotta go get Heroes Reborn, and uh, I did, I did, I found those pretty cheap as well, uh, despite the fact, you know, like Jim Lee did the covers, and I, and the, I don't know if he did many of the interiors. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's been a, it's been a minute since I've uh, since I've looked at those, but. I eventually, you know, grabbed the Heroes Reborn stuff, and eventually uh, I was able to collect all the way back to uh, before I was born, which there were only a few, or there were only a few comics I could say that about because I've since dropped the Fantastic Four, you know, so I don't have a full collection from the day I was born. I've, I've dropped things like Hulk, I've dropped things like the Avengers, so a lot of the things that I did have since the day I was born are, it's really no longer the case at this point, but at the time... I was, you know, from before I was a, you know, a, a glint in my parents' eye till that current day, I had every issue of Fantastic Four that came out, and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, one thing I was kind of excited about was uh, the Grant Morrison Marvel Knights story, uh, which I think it was Fantastic Four one two three four or four three two one or something like that. Didn't really do it for me. <laughs> I was uh, I was just really getting to know Grant Morrison at this point. He was on New X Men. This is you know when he came over to Marvel and uh, he did uh, Marvel Boy, um, New X Men of course, and he did this Fantastic Four thing, which really didn't do a whole heck of a lot for me. Uh, his at the time running buddy would take over Fantastic Four sometime in the years following that. Uh, Mark Miller and. Uh, that was another run that I did not care for. <laughs> it was another run that uh, reminded me why Fantastic Four would never be my favorite book. Um, 
I really just collected it out of inertia at that point, and I mean that's just something that I do here. Uh, we could probably skip ahead to uh, to Hickman, whose run. I mean, I've been on record as saying his run. I gave it an unfair shake because early in his run, there was a lot of discussion about rebooting the universe, and uh, I kind of let that cloud my judgment, and it made me. Just like kind of hate read the book Because I was afraid it was leading to You know, a tabula rasa Sort of Sort of reboot of the Marvel Universe So I didn't allow myself To uh, just receive the story And as such I feel like I did it a great disservice Right? I do know a lot of folks who like absolutely Swear by that run and, and consider it like The pinnacle of Fantastic Four But uh you know, I, maybe I should give it another shot. You know, if I can, if I can somehow find an extra few hours of the day, I might be able to give that a shot. But uh, I do feel bad for maybe dismissing it unfairly. Um, I, I, you know, absolutely dismissing it unfairly because eh, maybe it was something I would have enjoyed. I just didn't let myself do it. I, it was, I was in the you know once bitten twice shy thing. I had, uh, just a year earlier, I had gone all in on uh, DC's Brightest Day uh, cross-event. You know, it's not a crossover, it's not an event, it's a cross-event. It's just all these books with Brightest Day banners on them. And uh, whether they were tied into each other, it didn't really matter. It's just like, hey, DC has this great idea. Plaster this logo on all these books and idiots like, well, me, will buy all of them. And so I did that. And then... uh, you know, we had this promise that this was all going to lead somewhere, and it did not. It led to uh, pulling the lever on a toilet. You know, they flushed everything and started the new 52. So, once bitten, twice shy. I was uh, really, really getting nervous about what Marvel might do as a uh, response to the new 52, and I really, really didn't want to see something, another, you know, brand new sort of a reboot, relaunch situation, because that would have. That would have probably ended my comic fandom, uh, probably altogether, because really, what else is left? But after Hickman left, we we go into this run of volumes here, because this the book we're going to discuss today is volume six. You know, we're in volume six of the Fantastic Four. So they, they were these, like, weird, shorter volumes, and they were all very formulaic. And we'll talk about that in, in just a bit here, because... Uh, I'm going to do something very tacky here, and I'm going to quote myself, which uh, will allude, or we'll we'll talk about the Fantastic Formula, you know, of how these books were written for a few years. And uh, on March 30th of 2018, I had written a piece on the blog, Chris's on Infinite Earths, about, uh, we were still a uh, DC Comics only blog at that point, so... Uh, the way I could tie in the Fantastic Four was to talk about in you know intercompany crossover sort of a situation there. So I did a weird Gen thirteen Fantastic Four crossover, a prestige format book here. Gen thirteen counts for DC since they're Wildstorm and DC owns Wildstorm. It's all these things I tell myself to make it so I'm not breaking my own rules here. But um, I covered this Gen thirteen Fantastic Four book. As a way to commemorate the fact that the Fantastic Four were being were being brought back, because for a time, you know, we had these short volumes of Fantastic Four, and then Fantastic Four just went away. They went back to legacy numbering for like three or four issues again, and then they were canned. 
Um, Marvel didn't have the movie rights. I, I don't know if they do now. I don't follow any of that stuff, but they didn't. And so uh, they threw a little tantrum and took the Fantastic Four off the shelves. I know they, they say it was for other reasons, but uh, I ain't buying it, and uh, neither should you, because uh, Marvel's very, very petty. So they announced uh, probably March 28th or March 29th of 2018 that the Fantastic Four are coming back. And uh, you couldn't go on comics Twitter or comics Facebook without seeing a whole bunch of people celebrating. Like, you would think these people actually bought and read Fantastic Four, even though nobody did, right? So um, what I wrote on March 30th, 2018, is kind of an appeal to those people to don't just talk about it, actually be about it. You know, put your money where your mouth is. So what I said was, hey, looks like we Fantastic Four fans finally have a reason to celebrate, doesn't it? A lot of internet high fives going around on the social medias, and I'm not much of a soapbox guy, but I can only hope that half of the folks taking part actually plan to put their money where their mouths are and, you know, buy the book. Fantastic Four is one of those special books that I have a complete run of since the day I was born. I can't say it's ever been my favorite, but it was more often than not a good time, and I was always glad to have it around. I'm hopeful that incoming writer Dan Slott has the right kind of love for the property, and that this volume won't go by the recent Fantastic Four formula of 1. Start run 2. Break the team up 3. Characters spend a year learning that they need each other 4. Reunite the team and 5. Cancel the book Rinse and repeat Anywho, I'm happy they're finally coming back, and if you are too, do your old pal Chris a favor and buy the book. Don't steal it online. Don't wait for choice panels to hit Tumblr. Don't just wait to hear a podcast cover it. Actually go out and support it. This way, six months from now, we won't all be bawling our fists and cursing Marvel for canceling the book again. Then again, this is Marvel, where we're always just about six to eight months away from a reboot anyway. And that was my little soapbox there, because uh, there were a lot of people... High-fiving online. Yes, they're finally back, and it's like, I know you're not going to buy this damn book, so don't, don't do this here. Don't do this for the, for the internet clout. Um, now, like I said, I was happy they were back, but it was a Dan Slott book. It was a Dan Slott book, and um, of late, I find his work to be particularly angry. And uh, I mentioned this during our discussion of X-Men plus Fantastic Four. You know, I was I was hoping that maybe Chip Zarsky would get a you know get the uh, up you know the ongoing gig, but uh, as it is Dan Slott, you really have to pry these things out of his cold hands to uh, to take a property away from him. And I find that he, especially now, just comes across as very very bitter and angry, and he's adversarial toward readers. And that, to me, is a big red flag. I mean, we talk a little bit about creators who are adversarial toward their fandom, their fan base. Um, I'm already kind of cringing at the thought that we have to do an Al Ewing book as part of this show in Sword. Speaking of, you know, being adversarial toward your readers. So Dan Slott just doesn't seem like a fella that I'd like to support with my money. And, uh, you know, I think back to the way he conducts himself here, and I remember him telling someone who had a very minor problem with something he did on Spider-Man to, to go F themselves. Like, didn't say F themselves, but he spelled it out. In public, like on social media, so everyone could see it. And, 
you know, I don't care if you include a, like a cute little my tweets don't represent my employer in your profile. If you ask me, if you're working for Marvel, you gotta understand that the only reason like 99% of the people following you are actually following you is because you work for Marvel. Whether you like it or not, cute disclaimer or not, you're a Marvel representative. I mean, it might not be fair, but it is what it is. You know, it reminds me of like when like a like a rock truck is on the freeway and they have a sticker on the back saying not responsible for broken windshields. It's like, uh, yeah, you are. Just because you put a sticker there doesn't absolve you of your responsibility. It doesn't uh, absolve you from having to tie down your loads properly. It's just, eh, you know. Now, slots even come at me personally a time or two when I dared to suggest that him bringing back a version of Uncle Ben and like one of the Spider-Verse things in Spider-Man wasn't near as revolutionary or internet-breaky and halfy as he said it would be. He, he came at me guns blazing. And this is just not a dude I'd want to follow or support with my money. Though, I will say, in fairness, I've enjoyed a lot of his work. I have enjoyed a lot of his work, so it's a shame. I would, uh, I'd put Superior Spider-Man next to damn near any Spider-Man story for the past 40 years. I think it's that strong and that well done. It's just a shame that uh, he just conducts himself the way he does. I just, uh, I just can't support it, unfortunately. And... Unfortunately for uh, for him and me, uh, Fantastic Four is no longer one of my I can't quit you books. So uh, I can't even justify it that way. But for this issue that we're about to discuss right now, this does actually affect the books that we're covering. So we're going to include it. And it's going to be a pretty breezy look at it because a lot of it, I don't have the context for a lot of it. You know, uh, this is a story that we're joining in progress, a new status quo that I have not followed at all. So I will, uh, I would be doing it a grand disservice to try to analyze it the way we do with our normal, you know, Dawn of X, X of Swords, Reign of X books. So I think that's enough vamping. Let's get into it here. This is Fantastic Four, Volume 6, Number 26. It's had a January 2021 cover date and a legacy number of seven. I'm sorry, 671. The story is called One Stop From Everywhere, written by Dan Slott with art by R.B. Silva. Colors, Jesus Abertov, letters, V.C. Joe Caramagna, edits, Martin Byro, Alana Smith, Tom Brevoort, and C.B. Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99, and this one went on sale November 18th of 2020, so right in the middle of our exit 10s, so... Let's get into it. We open with a single-page spread of creds and roll call all at once, on the same page, so it can be done. And next thing you'll tell me, that a quarter of this issue won't be eaten up by text pages. Hmm. All right, anyway. We open at the Florida Everglades, where Johnny Storm and his new gal pal Sky are checking out the nexus of all realities. And, you know... We have a place near my house, like around the corner, that I, that I call the nexus of all realities. Uh, it's an intersection where Lake Pleasant Boulevard crosses with Lake Pleasant Boulevard. I mean, there's got to be some hinkiness about that, right? I mean, there's really no reason for it. Anyway, they run into Man-Thing because, of course, they do. Johnny kind of geeks out. That's his words, not mine. I would never say geeked out upon seeing him. Sky doesn't seem all that interested. 
Now, the gimmick here is that the Fantastic Four have recently discovered, I think, and are currently stewarding this interdimensional thingy called the Forever Gate. Not to be confused with our own Krakoan Gates, though I gotta wonder why we quite need these many teleportational gateways in Marvel Comics right now. I feel like even the Krakoan ones are a bit too much. Anywho. Now, the Forever Gate, if Reed and Valeria can get to the bottom of it, has the potential to send people anywhere they want to go. And we contrast that with the nexus of all realities, which is far more random in where it sends whoever dare pass through it. They just wind up somewhere. Sky likes the unpredictability of the nexus more, which makes her sound like someone who's never actually had to be anywhere. Johnny does something with a holographic computer doohickey and suggests that they head back to Yancey Street. We shift scenes to Reed and Sue giving something of a press conference about this forever gate, Reed is really given the possibilities the gate might offer the hard sell here, but he begins to wax on like a bit too long, and so Sue has to cut him off and end the event. And I think this is supposed to be humorous, but it feels more to me like Mr. Fantastic has slipped into you know season seven of a sitcom mode where he's just become like a trope unto himself. Anyway, nearby, Valeria decides to have herself a goo through the forever gate because uh, she's crushing on this weird alien dude from some foresty-looking world. His name is Arboro, and evidently they had themselves a thing. I I know Valeria's been rapidly aged, but how old... I mean, she's still a young child, right? Anywho, she goes to visit, and comes to find that when Prince Arboros invited her to be his consort, that, uh, well, she wasn't going to be the only one. So she sees him flanked by a dozen or so concubines, so, uh... Uh, was that gonna be Valeria's fate? This is weird and icky, and uh, I'm not sure why it's necessary, but, uh, at least it's short. Val then heads home to kvetch about how awful boys are, even though she's talking about a fully grown alien pervert. She rattles Franklin's cage about this, and, uh, he kinda just ignores her. Then we get to the reason we're looking at this issue at all. The one page that's relevant to the X-lapsed experience. Well, the main page. There'll be another mildly X-relevant page a little bit later. But this is the biggie. This is the biggie. Franklin goes to head to Krakoa, but he's stopped by Professor X. Xavier tells him that he cannot help restore Franklin's mutant powers because, well, he doesn't have any, and he never did. You see, folks, after a half-century in publication, Franklin Richards is now not a mutant and never has been a mutant. We'll just let Chuck explain it. He says, you're not a mutant, and according to Cerebro, you never have been one. As a child, you dreamed of being different, special. Without intending to, you used your cosmic powers to alter every cell in your own body till it appeared as if you possessed the X-gene. I'm sure this comes as a shock to you, and you have many questions, but you're going to have to work out the answers for yourself. I'm very sorry, Franklin, but you are no longer welcome on Krakoa. And that's it. How you all like that? And we'll talk more about that in a bit. We've still got some moderately boring comic stuff to look at here. So, while Franklin stifles a sniffle, we shift outside to Yancey Street, where a trio of folks are attacked by the Fantastic Four's weird alien security team. Now, after being roughed up a bit, Ben Grimm pops out to confirm that these three are friends and not foe. 
Now, they are the power parents of Power Pack fame and some dude from Wakanda. Now, the powers are worried that their children never came back from a future Foundation space mission. And now that the Forever Gate is a thing, they're hoping that they could be brought back with the quickness. And so, an hour later, that's exactly what happens. So, wait a minute. There were kids lost in space, and the Fantastic Four did nothing to save them until, like, this minute? After having to be reminded? I I gotta be missing something here, right? Otherwise, the Fantastic Four are just dicks, right? I mean, this is... I don't know. I'm gonna assume I'm missing something here. Now, the next several pages have the the future Foundation foundlings return to Earth and be reunited with their families. Johnny's ex-wife, Lyja the Skrull, also shows up for some reason, but I... Thought she was dead. Oh well. We also see Ricky Barnes, who is the Bucky of the Heroes Reborn Pocket Universe. Uh, she uh, thanks Franklin for creating her, since he, you know, created that world. She, he, he's kind of a god to them, I guess. Now, we're, we're not going to be following this book, nor many of these characters, so we're not going to get too deep here. Uh, and I'm sure if I tried, again, I would only do them a disservice without the necessary context. The gist here is that in opening the Forever Gate and sending a beacon in order to save the Foundation foundlings, the FF have also alerted some Lovecraftian horrors to the breach. And, you know, these monsters show up and they start attacking New York. We'll let other shows handle that. The only reason that we're still talking about this at all is because two of these future Foundation foundlings are relevant to our ex-lapsed mission statement. Kinda. It's Artie and Leech who Franklin informs that he will show them how to get home to Krakoa. So maybe we're going to be seeing some Artie and Leech in our upcoming X-Books. Is that a good thing? Maybe. I don't know. That's it. That's the issue. That's really it. I mean, there is a cliffhanger. I don't have the context for it. We're not going to be covering it again, so we'll just let that be. But... That's the issue. Next episode, um, I can actually say by popular request, we're going to be covering Juggernaut number two because uh, when I floated the question out there if we should continue that series, it was uh, unanimous. Everybody said, let's continue with Juggernaut. So, uh, next episode, Juggernaut number two. But let's talk about this here. We're really not going to talk much about the story since, like I said, I don't have the context for it. Uh, I figure if you're following Fantastic Four, you probably enjoyed this a whole lot more than I did. Um, I'm only really covering it to uh, be a completionist and uh, make sure we you know, touch on everything ex-mutant or Krakoan related that's going on in the current day books here. Uh, one thing that did stick out to me that was part of the story is uh, Valeria as a concubine, potentially. I, I That is... Um, that's just weird, right? I mean, I don't know what this Arburos guy is all about. I don't know why he would invite a very young child to be his consort. It seems kind of creepy, and... Um, I mean, what was Valeria's goal in going there anyway? To, to be with this dude? I, I don't know how old she is. I don't know how old Arboros is. He looks he looks like a grown-ass man, so... It's a little creepy. I don't know why it's necessary in here. I, I, I'm picturing Valeria as being maybe 10. Maybe. After being rapidly aged. Even if I'm off by, you know, two or three years, that's still, still kind of gross. But, uh... 
We won't go there because I don't have the context for it. Maybe, maybe she's 25. I don't know. Maybe she's just a very, uh, a very fresh face 25. Maybe. Let's talk about Franklin. Let's talk about Franklin because he is the reason we're here. He's the reason we read X-Men plus Fantastic Four. He's the reason we got so excited during uh, House of X number one when Cyclops ran into the Fantastic Four and warned that, uh, you know, they, they'd, be, uh, they'd be taking Franklin home at some point. Here we find out that after being around for... He's been on this planet longer than I've been. He's not a mutant anymore. And that's it. I, 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 it feels like this should have been a bigger revelation. This feels like it's an afterthought. It feels like Franklin as a mutant wasn't... It should have been a story to be told, and instead it was treated like a problem that needed to be solved. Like, this page... You could have taken this page out of the issue, and it wouldn't have affected anything, except for, like, the one comment that he makes to Artie and Leech at the end. That, to me, makes it feel like this was like a last-minute sort of thing. It's like, hey, we need to drop this in, into the story somewhere. We need to make sure that we, we confirm that he's no longer a mutant. And as such, I feel like it really... It, nobody comes out of this looking good, you know? It doesn't help anything. It's just, Professor X comes, and he acts completely out of character. He, he says till instead of until. Which, I mean, that's very, very minor, but I, I would imagine Professor X would be a little bit more formal. And I, I, I would imagine he'd be a little less cold. He's like, hey, you got questions, but go F yourself. You got to figure it out on your own. I don't see that happening. Despite the fact that Professor X is a mutant, he's also a hero. He's also a good guy. I mean, depending on the week and depending on who you ask. But he is a... I don't think he'd be this cold towards Franklin here. Franklin and the Richards is, as a whole, they all put their faith into uh, Professor X, letting Krakoa, letting Krakoa be a second home for Franklin. And here it's just like, yeah, hit the bricks. You're not allowed back. We'll send your stuff. It just feels just so out of character. It feels lazy. It feels... It just doesn't work for me. Um, I'm... And, you know, I'm not talking about the fact that they demutified Franklin. You know, that that was... That's something Marvel felt they had to do, and it's something that Marvel did. Fine. I think there would have been a better way to do this. I mean, Professor X comes, and he's like, Yeah, Cerebro says you're not a mutant. Well, hasn't Cerebro been a thing since 1963? (laughs) You know, hasn't... Cerebro's been around a long, long time... Suddenly, it's like, oh yeah, Franklin's not a mutant. We saw Cerebro ping at Franklin in X-Men plus Fantastic Four. Did we miss an issue? Maybe it was one of those issues of Excalibur that I swear we missed, where Cerebro got a like an upgrade? They, they updated the firmware on it? I, I don't know. This feels just so strange. And also, like, wouldn't Xavier want to get uh, Reed and Sue involved in this discussion? Just to, <laughs> just to let them know? It's like... Franklin will go to his parents and be like, oh, yeah, I'm not a mutant anymore. And I never was. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Let, let's go to the batting cage. I, this is... This deserved a little bit more thought. I don't... And again, I don't have context. So maybe in Fantastic Four number 27, there's more. Maybe in 28, there's even more after that. 
uh, I'm going to have to rely on you all to let me know. But as for a big reveal, this was done in a single page, which to me feels like bleeding cool bait. You know, they were baiting the, you know, the, the vaunted comics journalists to write about this, to get more people to buy this issue. Um, because like I said, you, we, could have, we, we could have removed this page. And it wouldn't have changed anything. Um, I don't know. I just feel very, very unsatisfied with this revelation here. And again, it's not about the revelation in and of itself. If they needed Franklin not to be a mutant, if they needed Franklin to be something else, that's cool. But tell the story. Don't just have don't just have three or four panels of someone saying, "Oh yeah, everything you thought you were, you're not." Because the computer said so Even though the computer said you were a little while ago Now it says you're not So uh, best of luck, you know Pat on the ass, get out the door You know, Not a fan of this at all But not much I can do about it uh, We we might have lost one But we, we might have gotten two back We got Artie and Leech You want to talk about Artie and Leech? Yeah, me neither But uh, hey, we might be seeing them on Krakoa pretty soon I wonder I wonder if the editorial offices even talk to one another. So, I, for all I know, Artie and Leech have been on Krakoa <laughs> in the background in several issues already and uh, just never pointed it out. But maybe we'll see something. Maybe there'll be a little bit more connective tissue. We'll have uh, Artie and Leech show up and talk about their... Uh, well, one of them will talk. Artie will just project something about uh, their time as a future Foundation foundling. So, there's that. Um... What else can we talk about here? We could talk about the art. It's R.B. Silva, so it's uh, really, really good. It's a very, very pretty book. Um, even the stuff that was kind of boring to me, like the, uh, like those weird aliens, you know, the security team that, like, an old lady who turns into like a, whatever the hell it was, an alien, <laughs> and grabbed the power parents. Despite the fact that I was quite bored during that scene, it, it looked really, really good. Overall, I really can't say if I have positive or negative thoughts about this issue as a whole, since I, like I said, many, many times, I don't have the context for this. Uh, I would imagine if you're following Fantastic Four, this is more of what you expect. I have not read the Fantastic Four for several years, so uh, I'm way, way out of my, my depth here in trying to analyze it. So I'll just say, if you're reading the Fantastic Four, this is more of that. If you're not, well, and you still want that page with Franklin, you'll get it. But other than that, you may not need this in your life. I don't know if this would inspire anyone to jump in on a Fantastic Four because it sure didn't inspire me to jump in. So that's all I got to say about the issue here. And again, um, we are off the beaten path of our uh, Dawn of X, Reign of X books, and I am willing to cover anything in the wider Marvel Universe if, it, uh, if you all think that there's anything relevant to our discussion. So please point those issues out to me. Help me out, let me know what uh, needs covering, and I will be more than happy to devote an episode to uh, a new piece of X or mutant lore. So uh, please, help me out if you know something that I don't. But uh, that's all I got to say about this issue of Fantastic Four. Let's head into the mailbag before we cut out of here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Men number 15. He says, I am firmly of the opinion that the info pages from this issue should have opened X-Men number one. 
The entirety of X-Men volume whatever would have been improved by the knowledge that the X-Men no longer exist and that Cyclops was looking for a new role, whether in his family or within the Krakoan hierarchy. It would have added texture to the whole Hox Pox Docs premise to have characters feeling the absence of the X-Men. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode, we did get some info pages here, as Damien's uh, mentioned, that tell us that ever since, you know, House of X, there has not been an X-Men team. The X-Men have been disbanded. And I agree 100% that those info pages should have either ended Powers of X number 6 or started X-Men number 1, because this is information that would have been helpful to have not that it would have made some of these issues any more satisfying to read, but I think, you know, you know, context is king here. Knowing that the X-Men aren't a thing anymore, you know, despite the fact that they all have X's on their belts and everyone calls them the X-Men, knowing that they're not officially a team and that they have been disbanded would have been helpful here. The fact that we haven't had an X-Men team in the X-Men book for over a year at this point... I mean, that's something I can deal with. I mean, we don't have much of a choice. We have to deal with it. But the fact that it was all given to us in an info page, and I swear, I, I, I believe that a lot of folks skip them. I think that a lot of folks either skim or skip them altogether. I'd probably skip them if I wasn't, you know, writing shows about this. I'd probably skip the info pages. Some of them I skim anyway. So I'm sure a lot of folks out there might not even realize that the X-Men aren't a thing, you know, because it was presented in an info page. It's really bad. Um, Damien continues, Of course I'm glad to see the X-Men back, and I enjoyed the way the discussion went among the Quiet Council. The fact that Scott and Jean need Kurt, Emma, and Kitty to remain on the Council is a great bit of characterization. And we have one less hero on the Quiet Council, and will that influence the votes? It just might, though just a couple of chapters after this, we lose a villain on the uh, Quiet Council as well when Apocalypse is uh, chosen to remain with Genesis. So we're down to uh, the Reign of Ten, or the Reign of X, or however we're going to be saying that. Um, we're going to say Reign of X. I'm, I'm not playing the Ten game with anybody, but uh, I, it's interesting. It's very interesting, and I definitely appreciated the characterization there as well, like... Uh, Scott lying to Kitty about the portal or the the gateways to to get her to stay and uh, without you know telling her we need you here it's it was very very well done. Damien continues, Apocalypse versus Genesis is an interesting fight. I don't think I expected Apocalypse to win, so it was a little surprising. Of course, with the Genesis annihilation situation, he can win and lose. And yeah, this was a I I appreciated this fight in that it didn't. Um, it didn't require an entire issue to be told. I mean, it was told in an entire issue, but it wasn't an entire issue of fighting. This was an issue about the X-Men. This was an issue about the Quiet Council. This was an issue about Cyclops and Jean. The, the, the I was going to call them Colossus. No, Apocalypse and Genesis battle was uh, just came in bits and pieces throughout the issue. And I think it was really, I think it was much stronger for it. And just like you, I, I did not expect Apocalypse to win. I didn't expect uh, him to take Genesis' own sword and run it through her. I, when I saw the Scarab Sword Shatter, I figured it was a done deal. That uh, Apocalypse was either going to die or he was going to forfeit or he was going to turn on the Krakoans. I didn't see it going this way. This almost felt too easy. And, and I guess, you know, we find out that it 
was when the Annihilation Helmet gets involved, and we do have this whole second wave that uh, comes after that. But definitely a surprise. Definitely a surprise to have Apocalypse win, um, to actually disarm Genesis and Beater. It's, it was well done. It was well done. Damien continues. I have to agree that Asrar was not as fantastic as usual in this issue. I feel like he's deliberately aping Lionel Francis Yu here. I wonder if this is something editorial had asked for. As you say, it could just be overwork, but he's also doing most of the Excalibur you'll be covering in the next issue. And yeah, I mentioned that uh, Mahmoud Azrar, whose work is usually fairly mind-blowing, very, very good, uh, it came across quite muddy in this issue. It was kind of kind of globby. Um, not up to what we usually expect from him, but as you know, Damien pointed out here, Azrar is being used a lot, so... There's certainly a possibility. Maybe his pencils were a bit looser. Maybe he was overly dependent on uh, the colorist to uh, to you know get some shading in there or something. But whatever the case, it uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't what we we're, we're accustomed to from Mahmoud Azrar, and uh, which still means it's very very good. But we've seen we've seen and we will see better. So there's that. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until we discover that I was disbanded all along, make my next lapsed. I'm starting to worry that we're all been disbanded. I, I just haven't found any of our info pages to confirm or deny that yet. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on uh, on X-Men number 15, the the big reveal, the, the soft shoe drop that the X-Men are no longer a thing. Long, long after the fact. But thank you so, so much. One last thing we'll cover is a uh, tweet from our friend Andrew Franklin uh, regarding episode 133, where we talked about Gwenpool Strikes Back. He says, I didn't know anything about Gwenpool. It turns out she's pretty cool. So thank you for, for listening to that very off-the-beaten-path episode here. And uh, I'm, I'm so happy that you uh, you enjoyed Gwen. Um, I was... Uh, I mean, I talked about it for an hour. I was very, very taken by that series. I loved it. Thought it was a lot of fun, and I'm happy that uh, that Gwen is now part of our uh, our ex family. So we might be seeing some more of her. I think uh, we should work on getting a hashtag going. You know, Gwenpool for X Factor or something like that. We'll see if we can't uh, if we can't uh, you know grease some wheels here and get uh, get her in a book that we that we actually cover and. Uh, Sometimes enjoy, so maybe uh, maybe that'll put it over the top for us. So, thank you so much for uh, for checking that episode out. I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure how that one was gonna go. I thought either a lot of people were gonna like it, or a lot of people were gonna be like, "What the hell is this?" So I'm glad you listened, and I'm glad you uh, you enjoyed the story. I hope you uh, I hope you're able to find it on uh, Marvel Unlimited and uh, and give it a look for yourself. And I hope everyone uh, will give that a look if you have access to a device that is compatible with Marvel Unlimited. But That'll do it for uh, the mailbag, and uh, if you would like to be part of the mailbag, please feel free to write in. You could uh, shoot me a tweet or a DM on Twitter. I'm at Ace Comics. You could also shoot me an old-fashioned email over at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, where I've just uploaded all of the Xlapsedination episodes. So if you're following the show through that website, which I, I would imagine nobody is, but just in case, time travelers and whatnot, um, those X-Lapsed-A-Nation episodes are right there for you there. Uh, you can chat with us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. 
And for all your Chris and Reggie channel needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Maybe the only time we'll ever cover a Fantastic Four issue on the show. So there's that. We got that done. I want to thank you all so, so much for hanging out with me today, sharing your time, and letting me be part of your day. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.